studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, they could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me to make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do, at least theoretically, is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But starting today, ah, starting today is an irregular feature of my show, something that's brand new. I mean, it's been on my mind for a hell of a long time, don't get me wrong. I think literally since the day I launched the show, actually, but today is something that's brand new. I'm, for lack of a better term, at least for right now, I'm calling this irregular feature of my show, I'm calling it This Is Music. And the basic idea, if the title of this thing isn't kind of self-explanatory, the basic idea is that I'm going to take a fond look back at albums that meant a lot to me at various points in life, and... If this sounds a little bit similar to long play, I ask only that you remember that I was at least thinking about doing this before long play was a gleam in anybody's eye. So that's really one of the reasons why I feel okay about about doing this. So uh, before I get into today's selection, you know, the material that I'm going to be talking about today, I've got a very special and I would say very important guest for reasons maybe obvious and not so obvious, but... I refer here to the founder, host, lead blogger, and lead podcaster of Pop Culture Affidavit. Yes, I speak of Mr. Tom Panarese. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? I am well. I am well. Let me just start off by saying thank you very much for joining me. I mean, you were literally my my very first choice to talk about today's album. That's great. Thank and you. The reason for that is obviously, you know, the fact that I 
I, I kind of suspected that you were a fan of this album before you even came right out and said, hey, Ginger, I'm a fan of this album. <laughs> but the other thing is, you know, Pop Culture Affidavit, apart from being one of my favorite podcasts and one of the best that's going on the Internet, if you ask me, you've talked about albums on your show before. And so that alone made you an, an attractive candidate for this show. So like I say, uh, the uh, idea of choosing you, it, it existed really on multiple levels. So uh, anyway, but here we are. So now what album are we talking about today? We are going to be talking about REM's 1991 album, Out of Time. And why is it that we're talking about this? I mean, why not start with their very first album? REM, um, REM's one of those bands that has almost like distinct periods. Yes. Like you can, and 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 I, and um, no matter what your your opinion on on this other band is, but there's a lot. Um, it's very U2 in a sense because U2 kind of has the same period where you can divide you can divide U2's albums up into like chunks and you can do that with REM and you can do that with 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 other bands as well but um but from um I'd say murmur up all the way up until document and then green to probably Mon, maybe New Adventures and Hi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Although I have to be completely honest with you, that's an album I've only heard all the way through once or twice. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. It, um, New Adventures and Hi-Fi is basically the album that I missed because I was in college and my musical tastes had gone in a completely different direction. And I heard it because my roommate had it, and it was always one of those where I made a mental note of I should go out and get this CD, but I didn't have to get it because my roommate had it, so you know I could borrow it anytime I want to. And then that kind of fell by the wayside. And then was it what was the one after that? Up. Yes. Up, and then beyond. Up is kind of like the. I mean, maybe there's a fourth period in there, but after Up, I kind of. Um, I, Kind of there, kind of fell by the. They kind of fell by the wayside as a band for me, and and so and my sweet spot as far as REM is concerned is, um, that period between Green and 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 from Green to Monster, and then really more specifically, Out of Time, and Automatic for the People, and then so that early early nineties REM, which honestly coincides with high school. For me, because I started high school in the fall of 1991, so mm-hmm. it so this is this for me. This is the end of the eighth grade and the beginning of ninth grade, and so it's basically me being a teenager. So there's something there's something to be said about that as well, because um, REM as a band never felt like a it it always felt like a band for. Even when I was like in junior high school, especially high school, when I was when I would listen to Out of Time and even more so Automatic for the People, um, it felt like I was listening to a college band. So I felt actually like I, it sounds so stupid to say I felt smarter for listening to the band, but there was something more. <laughs> there was something more to REM than some of the other stuff I was listening to at the time, and uh, and so it was. Um, yeah, it was definitely kind of a step up 
for me at least. And it was a band that <laughs> sounds so stupid. I had I had shit self esteem in high school, and it, it, this goes back. This goes to like you know what I what I liked and what I listened to and what I watched and stuff and. I, I music was a big huge thing. Music and sports were two huge things for the the people I hung around. Um, sports I could hold my own in terms of fandom, just arguing people over hockey and and, and stuff like that. But with yeah. with music, there was this sense that there was a group think about certain bands mm-hmm. and that you had to listen to it. And it started with Metallica, and. And, you know, Pearl Jam was in there, Nirvana was in there, but there was a lot of Soundgarden, but there was a lot more among that group and their group think toward the metal side of things. And R.E.M. didn't necessarily fit into that mold. Right. Um, And I and um, so it's almost like I was secretly listening to R.E.M. Like I had um, I had taped this album Mm -hmm. and bits and pieces of automatic um, just by, believe it or not, checking them out of the public library. Wow. Really? Yeah. They had the, 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 a couple of friends of mine who are, who I'm friends with now from Facebook, who I, um, I knew worked at the public library. Uh, You know, their basic job was like, you know, putting books back on shelves and things. But I I have to wonder sometimes if they influence some of the CD choices (laughs) because the library had this really huge CD collection and there was some alternative stuff in there. And then there was a lot of really good, like solid classic rock. Mm-hmm. There was some Zeppelin, there was some Steve Miller band and stuff like that. So I would every <clears> once in a while come in, check out two or three CDs, take them home, listen to the listen to them, and then just put a 120 minute tape in my stereo and hit record. Yeah. And oh, and those things were that. godsend, weren't they? Yeah. So so uh, so uh, stuff from Automatic from the people and out of time became kind of in rotation in there, and um, especially when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, and maybe bringing in $20 every once in a while for mowing a lawn or, you know, so it's not like I had a salary, so I couldn't go out. So getting CDs was a birthday and Christmas thing. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I remember I used, those days, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so getting my hands on an REM CD was not, you know, it was just one of those things where other things took priority or whatever. So it was a good way of doing that. So, but yeah, it was almost like I was secretly listening to this band, which, in hindsight, was a stupid train of thought to have, especially since um, there were a lot of people I knew who just liked liked the band. There were a lot of girls I knew who liked the band, hmm. and um, and and then when I got to college, things kind of changed because uh, still never bought the CDs, but roommates had them, and they were just uh, for a while here and there, depending on who I was hanging around they were in rotation on and off with a bunch of other stuff that, you know, in the mid 1990s was, you know, basic required listening in, in college, college dorms at the, at the time. Um, but yeah, this is a band that musically they are so um, complex mm-hmm. and yet, yet have this really, and this is a, a phrase I kept writing down as I was just jotting down notes and I and I, I, I downloaded this uh, album a while ago, and I re-listened to it, and I ended up listening to it again this morning because it's only forty-five minutes long. Yeah. And I kept writing the words "pop sensibility" because they they 
these guys know how to write like a rock song or a pop song. Mm -hmm. And yet they do what they can to break the mold, but without, with the exception of a few things without getting too, you know, high and mighty pretentious about it in the way that other, that other bands of their ilk may have gotten um, from time to time. Right. Well, and that was actually something that I didn't, I certainly didn't really fully appreciate at the time, but in, Mm -hmm. but like in hindsight, looking back at it, I kind of had to wonder if, you know, was this intentional on their part to kind of, I mean, these days what we call it is counter programming Mm -hmm. where, you know, and like where people try, you know, typically use that is in reference to movies. In fact, there was one fairly recently with uh, Batman v Superman. Well, somebody saw that as an opportune moment to release my big fat Greek wedding Two, which is the complete fucking total demographic appeal. Yes. And the idea being they're not going to get a better cover than this. And so that, you know, and it's it's like a legitimate thing. And if you think about the other stuff that was coming out at the time, uh, out of time did. I don't know if the term counter programming existed at that point, but in a weird kind of way, that's sort of what this was, because I would say that this was kind of like the twilight of the that 80s hair metal glam metal type stuff oh it definitely is yeah right probably i don't think we're quite to the grunge era yet but give it six months yeah i think nevermind comes out that fall okay okay well i just threw out a number but no it really is six no i think yeah it's roughly six months but then again and this is one of the things that um you and i are not lazy pop culture historians so to speak both of us do our research yeah. both of us have good memories for this but there there's this tendency if you're watching um you're watching you're, you're reading some crappy article on a blog or whatever there's this tendency for people to to play it up as if nirvana appeared and there was nirvana and everyone else when the other thing that was like the biggest thing in the fall of 1991 was u2 yeah. Because Octon Baby came out that fall. And so and then and Van Halen was still kicking Van Hagar was still kicking around and, and for unlawful carnal knowledge. Yeah, they would well. be around so, for another couple of years. Yeah. yeah so so it's not like uh, it j- just because Nevermind knocked um, Michael Jackson's album off the number one part of the charts that people tend to take that as like, you know, the the be all and end all. And this is the grunge era. And, and if you get it as you get into 93 and then in 94, it becomes more solidified because that's when record labels start signing anything that sounds slightly similar to something out of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Some of it good, some of it completely forgettable, but um, yeah, candle box. I'm looking pretty much right. At you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And I have that CD. Um, uh, but you know, and, and some of us saw through it completely and then some, and then and other bands did really well and then things kind of lightened up as we got into the middle to late part of the decade. But, um, yeah, I call that the customer service era of music where, you know, you had this really existential angsty, almost melodramatic kind of grunge, heavy grunge music. Mm-hmm. And then you go from that to this sort of hootie and the blowfish type of sound where, and not, I'm not trying to make them like the poster boys of everything because they weren't, there were other things that were going on at that time, but something about that just seemed very Mick music to me. Like, 
you know, you pull up to the drive through, you make your order and there's your hit single waiting for you on the other side. And it did. But it, and the funny thing about it was that um, the two the two bands that came out in 94 that really kind of typified that are them and the Dave Matthews band. Both of them came out of fraternity houses. Well, they, they weren't like, but they, they came out of playing like this fraternity circuit mm-hmm. in 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 uh, in Hootie's case. I think it was they were out of South Carolina. Mm. They're out of the Carolinas. And I'm 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 living in Dave Matthews country. He you know, I'm in Charlottesville. He oh, yeah, he oh, got his go. start here. Yeah. But they got their start playing fraternity houses and so that's a even though you might have frat bros listening to you know smells like teen spirit still the type of party music they're going to play if it's not early 90s dance hip-hop whatever it's gonna they're gonna hire a band that is going to be lighter and get people um you know dancing around right plus not so much hootie but dave matthews got a lot of people laid yeah. In colleges in the mid 1990s. Yeah, you put on you know. a crash, you're getting uh-huh, it's the same uh-huh. as that. Yeah, so and then I think the other band that that might that might you could add to that is probably a band like Blues Traveler which mm. had sort of even though they weren't like the frat circuit but they had a they had a lighter sound to them even though they were incredibly talented. And 4 is still a very very good album, but <laughs> Uh, but it, it was know. much more radio friendly, though. Yeah, uh, radio friendly is a good phrase for it. Well, and you know, the the song specifically on this album, what I always, what or not always, what I've come because I mean, keep in mind, I was like ten years old when this mm-hmm. when when this album came out. So complete. I mean, when you think about it, today, I and I don't mean this as a shot. I mean, I'm just saying it because it's true. I don't think our age difference is really that big a deal. No. Back then, the age difference between us was fucking huge. I mean, there's oh, a yeah. huge difference between being 10 years old and 15 years old. Yeah, my well, so you were born in what 80? Yes. Okay, so we're, we're I would have been 91. I would have been 14. Oh, okay. Well, I, that's still 15 a, and 90. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, because my sister, my sister's your age. So I, I so I, I actually know in real life from that age difference. Ah, well, where really, the okay. two. Yeah, where the two of us, my sister and I now, can have a conversation about most things in popular culture. But yeah, but when you're when you're 13, 14, and 1990, 1991, and you know your your sibling is nine, ten years old, and a girl, so she's listening to the new kids on the block. Yeah, probably rather heavily. Color, and color me bad. Eventually. Oh, oh God, color yeah. me bad. <laughs> And, um, and I'm listening, and, and I'm I'm grabbing things, and and I'm also grabbing at this point in time Guns and Roses as well. Yeah, well, the reason this album was ever on my radar in the first place, by all rights, it shouldn't have been. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was just way too young to listen to. I what would a fourth grader, like a, a fourth grade boy in 1991 listen? I fucking I don't even remember what it would I have been. I don't know. But I mean, I remember. You know, I I kind of liked certain songs, but this idea of a band, no. Mm-hmm. But I did have older brothers, and my older brother is actually the same age as you, and so I kind of had this entree into this world of music that, strictly speaking, I shouldn't have had any kind of real exposure to, but I did just because of Birthright. Mm-hmm. And so, 
you know, this album, I remember thinking that this, I, I didn't know REM from, you know, their IRS era, uh, era. And I, I don't think I'd really heard anything from green that really would have stood out to me at the time. So for all intents and purposes at that time, this was from my perspective, their debut album. Mm-hmm. And this really was their big commercial breakthrough. Let's face it, you know. I was familiar with Stand, and that's about it. Yeah, you're right. I guess I forgot about that. That's green, but, isn't it? Yeah, off green. But but this is the – if Stand's, Stand is kind of the chipping away, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a recognition there. This album, especially Losing My Religion, mm-hmm. this is the – vault into the stratosphere this is where like you know it it works they're not this takes them beyond a one-hit wonder right and if you think about it how many how many bands are on the scene around and doing their thing pushing 30 in fact Mm -hmm. and have been around for like a decade before they finally have their big commercial breakthrough this is not the usual formula for a rock band i mean generally you know like how old do you think your average rock star was whenever they they'd hit it big like 23 24 something like that i'd say roughly that yeah and so to be almost 30 i mean like the joke goes if you haven't made it by the time you're 30 it's because you're not going to well here we are you know and they had to be kind of wondering well you know the clock is ticking here and if you listen to like you know their irs era stuff the pot, like the potential was always there. And I kind of I, I, like in retrospect, I kind of have to wonder, was the mainstream waiting for them or were they waiting for the mainstream? I mean, it's kind of a chicken or egg kind of a question. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's but I remember thinking like at the time that, you know, especially losing my religion. Started getting played a lot on the radio. Yeah, they sounded different from just about everybody else that was on the radio at the time i mean to a fourth grade to a fourth graders ears there's not a drastic sonic difference between van hagar and guns and roses i mean people who don't like one of those bands or the others may cry bloody murder over that and i'm sorry <laughs> but i'm just saying that they don't sound radically different whenever you whenever you're uh, an idiotic 10 year old you know what do you want to hear yeah these guys did. Nobody sounded the way they did at this time. You know, I mean, I would. And in fact, it's kind of you mentioned Dave Matthews band. You could kind of view this in a weird sort of way as a sort of proto Dave Matthews album in a, in a weird kind of way. Yeah. They made a cottage industry out of this type of sound, not these songs, obviously, but like maybe this type of instrumentation. You know, they went their own way with it. But, you know, it's only j- literally just this very moment I started realizing, you know, there are some similarities here. Yeah, there definitely are, and and I'm looking at I'm I'm really quickly looking at what was on the Billboard Hot 100 around the time. This is March. I think this album comes in, out in March yes. of, of '91. Yes, and uh, I don't I off the top of my head, and I probably could do the research, but I'm, I don't want Skype to crash on me um, to see when Losing My Religion actually charted. But number one in the country in the middle of March, you've got Mariah Carey. Um, Sting. Uh, you have some uh, Whitney Houston still around. Uh, just look, we have. Oh God, we're, we're entering the Celine Dion, Michael Bolton era. Um, 
you know, so you have a lot of these, you have a lot of pop that's on the, that's on the, on the, the hot 100 mm-hmm. in a way that, um, which is a chart that hip hop and R and B comes to dominate at one point, um, in, in the 1990s in a way that, that had never been seen before. And, <clears throat> and rock acts really do get into it within a few years, but, uh, you know, the nineties is such a, the nineties is one of those perfect decades, especially the early part of the nineties is one of those perfect times for a group like R.A.M. to break through because it was really eclectic as far as what would chart and what wouldn't. Um, whereas the latter part of the decade, everything was so formulaic Yeah, and it was so calculated because everything was a boy band, a teen pop star or something derivative of that. If it wasn't produced by Sean Puffy Combs or something. And some of that music was decent. A lot of it was, some of it was shits. A lot of it was just for, you know, you could ignore it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the early nineties, a, a group like R.E.M. could have, could have a song like losing my religion go because, you know, it, it cut through a lot of the, the saccharine pop that you had from Mariah or Whitney or Wilson Phillips and, and, and these sorts of groups. Oh, geez, if, yeah. if you're talking mainstream radio and not just, um, what they would come to call modern rock mm-hmm. stations, um, which I didn't get actually, because, uh, there were only certain stations that the radio in my room could pick up. So, the mainstream pop station, the top 40 station, and, and what would be sort of the kind of adult contempt station, which had a little bit of top 40 to it. Mm-hmm. And that's <clears> where <throat> I first heard Losing My Religion, because, um, which we'll get, I'll get into more detail, but uh, because I didn't have MTV mm-hmm. when I was in high school. So I learned a lot from the radio. Um, as well as the occasional older cousin, you're talking about your brother kind of being your, your gateway. My older cousin was one of the reasons that when I was your age at that point, so when I was, when I was your age, when I was 10, mm-hmm. so I was, t- I was 10 in 87. So that's, and the albums I wrote, so 87, 88, 10 or 11 years old. I remember, uh, Van Halen, Van Hagar with OU812. Mm-hmm. Mm. which my cousin Kelly was listening to nonstop. In fact, she went to see them. I remember because I was staying for a week at their place and like Motley Cruz girls, 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 which was the album a bunch of my friends got and then <laughs> had taken away by their parents. <laughs> um, an appetite for destruction, which, which out of the three of those is the album. I will still listen to every once in a while. Um, but, uh, but that was, uh, that was because I knew kids who were, or people who were older than me because at nine, 10, 11 years old, you're right. You don't know from bands aside from an album you might already have, like if it was Michael Jackson or something mm-hmm. or what you hear on the radio. And so your, your listening becomes the radio. Right. And <clears throat> yeah. And it's, it's kind of weird to think that. You know, this is an era, you know, just to kind of, you know, cast your imagination back. This is an era when a music fan in many ways kind of was he was at commercial radio's mercy in a weird kind of way, because, you know, obviously, you know, the things like iTunes and whatnot didn't really exist. But the thing was, it's just I would say that the popular taste was just so narrow at the time that 
something that when you think about it, it's kind of weird that in just six months, you know, Nirvana is going to get as big as they did mm-hmm. because they don't really have that kind of polished radio type of sound or they didn't at that time have that sort of polished radio sound that conventional wisdom would have said that if you don't have this, you cannot get on MTV or you can't get you can't get FM radio player or, or, or what have you. And, you know, we're I don't know. This is just it, it really is like this. I would say that whole stretch of time from about 1989 until insert never mind here <clears throat> yeah it's just a really weird time in in american music and culture i would say you know and it's not like rem or not rem it's not like nirvana is necessarily the savior of all of that the way that some people like try to set them up up to be but you can't at the same time you, you cannot deny that it is weird that they of all people would be credited with reinventing what is mainstream music you know it's just it's very strange to me yeah and uh, and I always wonder if part of that has to do with uh, and no ill will towards the man, but part of that has to do with Cobain's suicide in 94. And I've always mm-hmm. wondered if if that, you know, in the same way we look at somebody like a, a Jimi Hendrix or, or a Janis Joplin, you know, the people who died young and only have so much to um, leave behind, you know, instead of just, you know quote dying and producing music from beyond the grave tupac but um <laughs> yeah but but i mean like you know so there was only so much nirvana 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 and i think we've had this conversation nirvana couldn't nirvana ended because before they could really suck and yeah um and and so it's almost like there's like a marker there but there's also i think the the culture as a whole and, and it's really really cool to, to look at how how art and light imitate each other and how pop culture reflects the culture as a whole and 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 this is a time when you have um the economy goes completely south <clears throat> in the at the end of the 80s um you know the market crashes in 87 and it takes a couple of years for it to um, it, it takes a couple of years for the effects to really be felt for that recession because I don't think it was as drastic as say um, like 2008 was. Yeah. Because the 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 the, the bubble bursting in 2008 was just just is, was a devastating economic um, you know bubble burst and mm-hmm. in the same in, in in very and and like in the in the early 2000s you had the same something similar happened with the dot coms at least personally remember being laid off from that but in the in the early 1990s um you have you have another housing bubble that that it's not as big but the housing market goes in the toilet um the defense industry gets hit very very hard or at least where i grew up because being on long island one of the big employers was northrop grumman grumman is because grumman started on long island northrop bought them out and then Grumman more or less disappeared. I mean, they're they're kind of there up there, but Northrop Grumman pulled a lot of things out. So that for the, my local economy, that really that really hurt. And the economy just wasn't very good in in the early 1990s. Um, it's one of the bigger reasons that George Bush lost reelection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, despite the success of Desert Storm, there was another year and the economy had not improved. And, you know, it, it just, and, and I think the music started to reflect that because this Motley Crue poison, these bands that were t- like basically living the party life with strippers on, you know, in, in LA and Coke, you know, 
piles and piles of cocaine, that wasn't reflecting the type of lifestyle that, that people were living. Those bands also imploded just individually because of the drugs. Right. Um, you know, I mean, the, you know, my, I, I remember, um, I remember listening to a, the Howard Stern show in like, it was like 96 and he had Motley Crue on God, what the hell was the name of that album? Generation Swine. Oh yeah. Okay. And he's interviewing them and I swear they were going to break up on the air. I mean, so you have these bands that basically are, are, are imploding left and right. And this scene is just not as, as hot as it used to be because a lot of people see through it. And this is also the era where you have, and it's staring at me from the top of a bookshelf. You have Generation X, and Gen X, at least at the time, was all about rejecting the efforts by marketing to um, shape them in a way that the previous generations and future generations had. I mean, granted, yeah, of all generations, they more than their predecessors refused to be defined by some giant corporation. Yeah, yeah, and and they were having a hell of a time trying to sell to them um, because they were just like you know, and and some of the so there are some really really laughable efforts to uh, to get Generation X people to buy certain products and like the movies movies that are really really good that um, like Reality Bites is. It's a pretty – it's a good movie. I, I enjoy it, but it tanked at the box office because people that age didn't want to see – they're like, we're living this. We don't need to see it on screen. And um, and I think when when you have that rise of, of the next generation that comes along and the millennials, it things flip a little more because they, they're able to uh, – they, they, I don't know. It sounds so, it, it, it sounds so condescending to say they're sold to a lot easier, but by then companies had figured it out. I want to say, um, at least if you read the tipping point, they figured it out. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's what's reflected in a lot of this music. It's, it's very, very disaffected. It, at least the first wave of it feels really homegrown. Mm-hmm. Um, even REM, REM's a college band that came out of Athens. Yes. So they were not assembled in a studio. Um, they're, you know, they were, they were very, very, they were the very definition of independent rock mm-hmm. from the 1980s. You know, um, think of, think of a band like the replacements that, started to get a little bit of success but they, they're another band that imploded for various reasons too but yeah. they were also a big indie band of the 1980s totally different style of music mm-hmm. and, and drunk on stage half the time but yes uh, but but they well, i've heard those stories yeah <laughs> oh yeah I've, I've heard they're really interesting it makes me want to have been a teenager in the 1980s because i'm just like but um but REM was is the very definition of a, of, a, of an indie band, and then Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. These are homegrown out of a of, of a particular scene. And Seattle was a city where you know not a ton of music had come out of Seattle. You know, Hendrix had come from there, Heart had been from there, but yes. you know, there were a few bands here and there. But it's not like they came out of LA. It's not like they came out of New York. Um, Boston ended up producing quite a number of of bands as well in the in the early 1990s. So. I think that was part of it, um, and that there there seemed to be an authenticity in a lot of the bands, at least in the first wave of of what we would come to refer to as grunge, for lack of a better term. Um, I think that's what it was, and I think a lot of that might have had to do with just the Gen X mentality. 
That's well, my. <laughs> well, and yeah, I mean, my that, pop culture analysis for today. <laughs> and you know what? I, I'll I'll ride with that. That sounds very persuasive. And I guess to get into the album itself. <clears throat> yes. As far as like discussing the individual songs. Uh, one of the things that I kind of like about R.E.M., especially in this vintage of their career, is that on the one hand, the, you know, we are definitely in now the CD era of music distribution. And so this idea of flipping sides, mm-hmm. that's just that's really not yours and my generation. It's just not. No, but that need not be an obstruction for rem one of the things that they that they tended to do and i think they did this lasted until you know their dying day was they would name each side of their their record albums whenever they were released on vinyl and so as it goes for out of time side one is called the time side okay and side two is called the memory side and you know the significance of all of that Fucking, I have no idea. But that is nevertheless how they handled it. And so side one begins with a song aptly titled Radio Song, or ironically titled Radio Song, because I don't think this song got played on the radio that much. But in a weird kind of way, this to me is the sort of prototypical REM song, but we can get more into that in just a sec. But for right now, this is Radio Song. Hey, I can't find nothing on the radio. You'll turn to that station. The world is collapsing around our ears. I turned up the radio. So, I guess as far as uh, the song is concerned, I mean, is this... I mean, I, I guess what... My way of looking at this song is that when Radio Song tries to be a pop song, I think it's a great song. I like, yeah. I like the melody. I like, I like the riff that it because it, it just kind of goes up and it goes down, it goes up and it goes down. And I just, I like this as a pop song. When it tries to be a hip hop song, less something. It and Karis One is not bad. You know, he's. It's just. I made a note when I was listening to this that this might be very good live. I've never seen, I never saw R.E.M. in concert. I was like, I wondering, I was wondering what this sounds like live because there's just a, it, it sounds like there might be more energy on that on the hip hop side of this mm-hmm. in a way that there that you can't necessarily um, capture for recording because the. The whole hip hop mixed with rock thing had not been perfected yet. Um, there had been the only one that I think that most people can remember at this point would have been Aerosmith and Run DMC doing "Walk This Way," yeah. and even that—that that was a cover that was a borderline novelty hit. Yes, it. it I mean, I like both of those groups. To a lesser extent, Aerosmith beyond a certain point. I, I kind of have an affinity towards 70s Aerosmith. And I like Run DMC. The two of them together, it worked for the time, but it, it, it's of its time and it, it does. It sounds like a novelty song. This is not trying to do that. Not, this, 
<laughs> radio song sounds like a mishmash of everything. It's probably what they meant to do. Although I love that um, that chorus. The, you know, the world is collapsing, and that 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 melodic singing, which is constantly cut off yeah. uh, throughout the song. But that's my favorite part of the song. I think because of just just how it plays, and, and um, as opposed to this weird rock new wave hip hop thing they're trying to do which is sometimes when I listen to it it works and sometimes when I listen to it it doesn't yeah I mean it, the part about it that kind of bugs me is the is you know you can mix genres you can mix styles and mm-hmm. you can sometimes produce I think very effective results but what you can't do is mix philosophies and I have never seen that turn out successfully. And, you know, not that Rage Against the Machine ever really set out necessarily to be like a big radio band. No. But there is something about, not so much like their their subject matter, like the things that they were talking about in their songs, mm-hmm. but just like the general idea of that kind of heavy, thrash, hardcore metal type of sound mixed with this really fast an aggressive type of of uh, sort of hip hop melodies and delivery. Yeah. To me, that combination is successful because it's all kind of of a piece with one another. It's different genres, but the energy and the philosophies are still very much the same. It's different here in that radio song. On the one hand, like I guess the pop portion of it, it wants to be a little bit more uh, contemplative. I guess. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, and then on the other hand, you have this really upbeat, high-energy type of rap melody that keeps intruding on my fucking pop song. I want my pop song, and it keeps yeah. getting taken away. And that, I think, is the is the part that doesn't work. I mean, you could – I think that you could throw – I'm not saying you should, but I'm saying I think you probably could toss a little bit of hip-hop into, say, Stand or maybe even Shiny Happy People, and I don't think anyone's going to – really notice or think about it too much you can do what rem attempted to do i just don't think this is the song to do it you know you know later in the decade a lot of bands and and into the 2000s a lot of bands would throw rap and hip-hop into the bridge of songs that are very much like shiny happy people Mm -hmm. and um there's a gwen stefani song from the or it's a, I think it's a Gwen Stefani song and not a No Doubt song mm-hmm. from the early two thousands that just does exactly that, but when the non rap radio stations like your if the song if the radio station had mix in its name and played the best hits of the eighties nineties and today you know those those stations yeah um, when they would play it they would have a radio edit version that took all the rap out. You know, Ooh. let's not scare the let's not scare anybody with yeah. the rap, with the hip hop for the black. But but it's which is totally what it was. But with um, so I've heard that done and and it's done well and it's done not well. But you're right. It's it's this just it. And, and I don't know if that's their whole point. Like we're going to make a song called Radio Song that is. Like satire in a sense that right. like you know this is not what you play on the radio so the, the, it's the whole thing where you're supposed to be in on the joke I don't know if it 
if it lands. I don't either. I mean, yeah, and like I said, I mean, it's there's a good song in there. If you think of this as a hip hop song, I'm convinced there's a good song in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you think of it as a pop song, there's a good song in there somewhere. It's blending them together. It's it, it just a very ineffective combination. And and, a, yeah. and you know, this is one of the few times I can think of where REM attempted something and it blew up right in their fucking faces, mm-hmm. which is rare enough all by itself. But then on top of all that, it's like they didn't notice. Yeah. And so uh, that's that's weird. But anyway, so. But they but they didn't make the mistake of. Because sometimes when bands release albums and the the record company the record company more or less chooses the I'm assuming the record company is the one that chooses the first single and in some cases the first single is the first song on the album like smells like Teen Spirit is the first song I never mind mm-hmm. this opens this album and yet the next song was the lead single yes and it was you know to whomever that whoever made that decision should have probably got a bonus and they deserve the bonus because it was a brilliant decision on their part. Um, and that's losing my religion. And, you know, this is one of those songs where, guys, keep in mind that when I was 10 years old, I I guess I wasn't really sensitive to the idea of regional differences that exist in in America. And I sometimes think that Europeans are not sensitive to the the regional differences between, you know, that that exist in America, you know, where the Midwest isn't necessarily the same from a cultural standpoint as, say, the West Coast, you know? And so the, this expression, losing my religion, you know, there were people and I would, I would hear them like talking, like talking on TV and stuff. And they were talking about that this is a declaration of atheism or or something like that. And I mean, I grew up hearing that expression all the time, you know, so-and-so is losing their religion. And what it basically means, it, like idiomatically where I've heard it used the most is basically somebody losing their temper over something you know you basically you you lose your cool for a minute but it could also be I guess more broadly applied to any kind of immorality like hey where's my daughter oh she could be out back behind the woodshed losing her religion you know her her virginity yeah yeah and so and that's it's, it's not saying that you know you are it's not even really anything to do with religion. It's it, it's basically just saying that you know you are behaving in a way that is unseemly. Yeah, and I, and I, I learned that meaning of the phrase from of all places pop up video. <laughs> it was one of the factoids on pop up video when they would do this video. Yeah, I remember. God, that was in a weird kind of way. That was a very interesting show, but it was such junk food television on the oh, other yeah. hand. Oh yeah, <laughs> but but you're right. What this shows, and and you're right because if you're if you're of the region where you he would hear this phrase on a regular basis, then the song has different meaning. But if they're talking in the media about what this, um, you know, what this means, and if it's a national media conversation. There's a very, very northeastern bias that still exists to a certain extent within the news media because most of the news media is headquartered in New York. 
Yes. So if they're unfamiliar, you know, the, the media is unfamiliar with things that happen outside of its own bubble, especially the national news media. And a lot of times they're too fucking lazy to figure out what, you know, and go figure it out yeah. to do their research. And, and I can totally see this being misconstrued because I thought it had something to do with religion because what did I know from, you know, from it, especially at 13, 14 years old? Yeah. Well, the other thing is, as far as the song is concerned, in a weird kind of way, this is one of those things that captured my interest whenever I was a kid because, let's face it, you know, kids, at least in, at, at that time, they were exposed to a lot of different music, primarily on the radio. Mm-hmm. And this was, oddly enough, not as big a radio hit as people want to remember. I mean, in my memory, the way that it worked was that this was a number one Billboard Hot 100 uh, mainstay. And come to find out, it peaked at number four. Now, I think it got radio play far out of proportion to that. But this is one of those songs that it's just been fucking played to death for me at this point where it's really hard for me to listen to it now because of the fact that it is possible, it's absolutely possible for pop radio to completely fucking destroy a song for you. Uh-huh. And <laughs> this is kind of one of them. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad song. In fact, like from a technical standpoint, I think it's an incredibly well-constructed and very unlikely type of pop song. Yeah. But it's just, you know, you, you hear something that fucking many times, it's just not... Yeah. <laughs> the the song I was comparing it to because of that reason was Mysterious Ways off of Oxung Baby because Oxung Baby comes out at the end of this year and yeah, that's another, another tough one isn't it <laughs> it's another band reinventing itself and um, in a way that really really worked I still really like that song that album even though as I listen to it it's still U2 mm-hmm. but it's a different it's almost like Here's this American. Here's REM with this American alternative music, mm-hmm. and then U2's Octone Baby is so European, in a sense. And, and if you know the story behind the recording of that album, it was done in Berlin, and it's it's very much of that side of the world at that time. And Mysterious Ways is the song that got played to. It still gets played. Yeah, it's hard to listen to these days. It, it, it's like they play that and that fucking eagle eagle eye cherry song from 1998 that they can't you know and then then they'll then they'll throw in something different they'll throw on jack and diane but you know um but they play (laughs) mysterious ways and and it that's a really good song yet i can't listen to it for this exact same reason that that losing my religion is one that i that i don't listen to very often because i've just i've heard it too many times man on the moon off of automatic for the people is kind of that way for me too um which is another topic for another day. But, yes, but but um, but yeah, you're right about and and losing my religion is a really well constructed song, um, and but I think it's also a misleading song for people who want to get into this band because there's a between this and a couple of the songs off of Automatic, you are led to believe that that's REM's only sound because so many bands of this time had really one song that they were essentially playing over and over and over again on an entire album. Pretty much. And a, and a lot of rock bands are like that. And REM on this out and this, the next like three albums are very all over the place and not in a bad way. 
there's a lot of different stuff that they try to put on those albums to so I think they're just stretching. They're they're trying to expand in some way or another that that not a lot of bands do, without trying some sort of pretentious concept album or something like that. Yeah, and actually, and you know what? This actually, I I can't believe I forgot about this. Are we in the unplugged era of music yet, or is that still a few years off? Um, let me look. I want to say we are at the beginning of the unplugged era. Um. Well, the reason I ask is because there was a point when, I mean, that was a a fad so common as to be ubiquitous. And it made me, you know, I, I truly did not even think about it until this very moment. But, you know, this sort of kind of has to circle back to an earlier part of our mm-hmm. conversation where we were talking about this album as breakthrough. And... It kind of makes me wonder, you know, did REM have their ha- have the wind at their back a little bit if the unplugged thing was was already a thing right. at this point? And, you know, here they are. They're playing different songs, but nevertheless, they are a bit more unplugged now as compared to, say, fucking document, you know? Yeah. According to according to Wikipedia, mm-hmm. Unplugged premiered in 89. Yeah. Um, but it was like, let's see, Squeeze, uh, just kind of a. a a mishmash of different people. Joe Walsh at one point. Mm. Um, there was an acoustic rap show that the LL Cool J, there was an LL Cool J performance of the mama said, knock you out. That got a real, um, a lot of it, but it's not until 92 when unplugged ah. really solidifies it because 92 is Mariah Carey and her version of I'll be there, um, which went huge and then clapped in. Oh, Clapton. Yeah. Clapton's the one who makes Unplugged um, more than just this interesting little show on MTV, because um, because Clapton does the does the show Tears in Heaven, which was already a hit. The Unplugged version becomes a monster hit. Layla charts as well. The the album goes huge, and then you have. Um, just about everybody doing unplugged at one point or another. And some people releasing an unplugged album like Rod Stewart and, and like pop acts. It was a way for, for kind of um, not that Clapton was a tired pop act, but it was a way for people who had been around for a while to kind of get reintroduced to another generation because you had people like Clapton and Neil Young and Rod Stewart and who had been around for, 20 30 years at that point um but yeah but but it was 92 that that unplugged really begins to take hold so your 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 assessment is right where this is you know bits and pieces of this are definitely um of the unplugged type of vibe hmm. okay i just wanted to yeah ask about that so Do i want to talk about the video <laughs> uh i'll let you talk about the video it's, I, I don't have nice things to say about it yeah i i don't I'm going to be diplomatic here. The video is very much of its time. It's um, it was div- directed by Tarsem Singh, whose only other thing I've ever seen was this Jennifer Lopez movie from about 2000, 2001 called The Cell, hmm. and um, with Vincent D'Onofrio, which was this surreal sort of cop movie where she's going into these dreams, and it was it, it's. Um, it fails on as many levels as it, as it works. Um, 
but uh, but this was <laughs> the the video is really just uh, it's very indie art house early nineties pretentious crap. You know, you know it's from the early nineties because the color palette of the video, the lighting of the video is very much of the time. Michael Stipe is literally standing in a corner doing that weird dance he used to do with his hands sometimes. Yeah. And I'm imitating it, but you can't see me because this is in a this is in a video podcast. Um yeah. I was kind of thought of it as this is Michael Jackson voguing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's or, sorry, very, Michael Stipe, not Michael Jackson. Mike, I got Michael sorry. Stipe. Michael Stipe. I'm gonna have to edit that. No, Michael Michael Jackson at the time was grabbing his crotch. Yeah, that was repeatedly yeah. and screaming repeatedly. Um, well, yeah. A while ago, I mentioned you know this the this notion of the title of this song being I think totally mis- misconstrued. Mm-hmm. And considering the amount of angelic and religious symbols going on yeah. in, this, in this video. It does kind of make me wonder, you know, R.E.M. had to be on set for this. And it, it it kind of blows my mind to think nobody pulled the director aside and said, you know, guy, that expression does not mean what you think it means. And, you know, I mean, at this point, you know, I, I guess the money has already been spent on angels and all this other stuff. So you can't really change the entire fucking concept of the video on the day. But still, dude, you got to give me something to work with here. And this... It's just like you say, it's way over the top, way pretentious, yeah. and it's got this I don't know, just this very nineties in fact, just early nineties. Yeah, it, it's very dated and not in a good way. Ugh. Um it won video of the year. Well, that says a little something something about the state of American culture at yeah. this time, now doesn't it? Yeah. Um the uh apparently this is me Wikipedia now I took my cell phone out so that I wouldn't interrupt Skype. And um so it was more Singh, Tarsem Singh, than than Michael Stipe, because um, Stipe's original idea for the video was a little more straightforward performance, and according to Wikipedia, it says akin to Sinead O'Connor's "Nothing Compares to You," whereas Singh wanted to create the video in a style of a certain type of Indian filmmaking, where everything would be quote melodramatic and very dreamlike, according to Stipe. So, granted, that's off Wikipedia. It was probably pulled from an interview somewhere, but. Um, I think it's two people playing off one another and, um, and this is what happens when, when that happens. And again, but again, it was not like any other video that was out at the time. Mm. So that was that, I think it had that going for it. And that's why it was, you know, Oh, this is, this is a great video. We can nominate this for, video of the year and it'll win and it'll make us seem like, you know, music video is a, is an art form because up until now it had been. In a weird kind of way. Yeah. The the art form or not an art form, but a form that dare not raise its head, dare not call itself art, you know? Yeah. Maybe with some justification. Exactly. (laughs) Well, cause like, um, because you had, um, like prior to that, if you wanted to talk video and video of the year, you were talking like people like um, Madonna, you know, and like, you know, like a big, like a big video at, at that point you had, um, 
Yeah, like David Fincher was still directing music videos at the time. So you had um, you had Madonna doing well, – I don't think Fincher directed Vogue. I think that was – was that Herbert's? I don't remember. Um, but you had Madonna doing Vogue. You had the Sinead O'Connor video and you had um, – you know, it was very, very pop. Rock videos were basically cherry pie and those sorts of things. <laughs> But I mean, all right. So, so it beats out. It beats out um, Queen Strikes, Silent Lucidity. Mm. Um, I touch myself by the Divinals. Talk about tits. Groove yeah. is in the heart, but by delight, which is, which is a song that's just so. That's a song that's so much of its own scene, and and it's just fun as hell. Gonna make you sweat. Which if there's everybody dance now, which is there any song from the early nineties that is early nineties dance. Yeah. And, uh, and one of my favorite videos from the early 1990s, uh, wicked game by Chris Isaac, but Ooh, that, that was nothing. a good one. Yeah. No, that, that, no, that truly was good. I'll give, I'll, I'll give it that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. it didn't try to, it, no, it did kind of have that early nineties kind of poster boy thing going for it. in mm-hmm. some, in some places, you know, they, God almighty, they did try to make, Chris Isaac, it actually sort of, in a weird kind of way, in a couple of those camera angles, he kind of reminded me like, almost like an Elvis impersonator, but mm-hmm. like the pretty boy Elvis, imp- like the Elvis impersonator with a heart of gold. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's like the poofy hair and everything. That's just what mm-hmm. I, so. Yeah. That, that was done by Herb Ritz, which, ah. which is, which is important because that was a photographer's sensibility. And when he's talking about Tarsem Singh and this style of Indian filmmaking, it, makes total sense that like I'm coming from my background in order to do it. And, you know, Fincher hasn't directed a music video in like 20 years, but there are some times when I see one of his films and I see some of the sensibilities he took from directing, like express yourself or, or whatever else he had, he had directed uh, here and there over the years. So, right. But I think we can put, I think we can we can lay to rest losing my religion as a, as a song and a music video at this point. Yeah, thank God. From there, uh, next up, this is track three, Low. So, Low, your thoughts? Um, I, I I started writing when I was I have very very hastily scribbled notes here and I'm trying to decipher them but I wrote lo-fi Liz Fair Joy Division something of that like this could have been this could have been on some level could have fit in with Exile and Guyville yeah and yet at the same time it takes me back to that sort of very early 80s early goth type of stuff not as not as depressed not as like you know but but it it does have that i wonder if it's drawing influence from there well it's kind of funny you know i i was going to mention the liz fair angle too joy division Mm -hmm. i i truly don't know why that didn't occur to me but i guess it didn't but when you think about it it makes sense because they are sort of somewhat contemporaries but yeah yeah um I don't know. For some reason, I, I it just seemed like this is the one of the best Liz Fair songs that yes. she never did. 
That's a, actually that's the one of the best ways to put it, actually. And I guess what I like about it is, you know, Stipe, he had done a little bit of this before, but he would. This is the first major occasion of him I can, uh, of him doing this that I can think of, where he uses that sort of low-throated, sort of raspy singing voice, mm-hmm. which on paper shouldn't work. That should sound like absolute dog shit, but mm-hmm. somehow. It, maybe it's just because of how sparsely recorded this thing is. It gets you right into the headspace of... I don't even... Look, I mean, I, as with so many R.E.M. songs, I have no idea what this song is about. You and, and me both. Yeah, well, it, it, it's just... This is one of those bands, and forgive me if, if you disagree, but this... R.E.M. is one of... They're one of those bands where what the song is a is about about in quotation marks it's almost like it doesn't matter because generally you know michael stipe was not exactly the most expressive songwriter in the entire world and so there is so much room for interpretation with most of his lyrics like if you listen to shit who's a kind of on the nose type of songwriter like if you listen to somebody like Prince, you can kind of figure out generally what most of his songs are about. It's because they're all about sex. Yeah, well, okay, I was going to say, yeah, pussy, man, but yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, you're right, though. Prince, even though, but but musically, Prince, it's a good co- comparison because musically, Prince is phenomenal. and the, But the lyrics, everything is really straightforward. Even the lyrics that are subtle. You get the hint, you know. Yeah. It's it's it, it, his tongue in cheek, but yeah, he's not. Um, he's not as indecipherable. There are some times where REM's lyrics are completely indecipherable for me, and what gets me through the um, song is the way it sounds. Yeah, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. You know, no. other writers they kind of wear their their intention on their sleeve a little bit, and mm-hmm. I speak here of this the Bruce Springsteen songs that aren't about cars. Yeah. Or perhaps Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. I mean, you know, for uh, he uh, he especially was a or is a writer that, on the one hand, wants to let listeners formulate their own interpretation of what this song means, mm-hmm. theoretically. In actual practice, I mean, the song Jeremy is about a guy who takes a gun to school and blows his own brains out. All right, that's yeah. that's what the song's about. Oh yeah. Or you know, even flow is transparently that's a song about homelessness. You know, so on and so on. Or that song, uh, I guess, to kind of go off the sort of hit single route. Another song from Ten is Once, and it never crossed my mind that that is not a song about murder. You know, somebody just going off the fucking deep end and killing. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's well and good for him to say well but but this song is about whatever you you want it to be about well fuck you dude no it's not i mean when you say you've got a bomb in your pocket and it's gonna explode you got a 15 gauge buried under your clothes uh that's a song about somebody who's killing people you know um and rem they're not really that band you know and of course they've kind of got the other problem what the fuck does it mean well who knows but it's I, i i'm not sure i'm not sure that one approach to writing songs is necessarily better than the other but this is you know again it's one of those songs that it's it, it's very sparse it's very downbeat it's a little spooky and it means whatever the fuck you want it to mean yeah and not that rem could do songs that weren't straightforward and and have it succeed because like 
everybody hurts, for instance, yeah. is not up for interpretation. It's very, very straightforward, and yet it's a very well-crafted song. Um, but yeah, it's like Stipe, and Stipe is deliberately, um, I don't know if obtuse is the, the correct word. Um, just oblique. Conf- yeah, oblique. That's the word I was looking for uh, in, in a lot of his lyrics, especially on on this album. And um, he's almost daring you to try to figure out what, what is going on here. Um, and yet at the same time, a lot of the songs that you listen to feel more personal um, than the sort of, I'm going to, then, then, then some of the stuff that Pearl Jam does where it is more about like darker things, but, but you don't, you don't always feel as attached to the subject matter in say Jeremy or once as you might end up being when you listen to something like, like low or, or, um, half a world away or some of the other songs on this album. Mm. And yeah, and I don't know if that's a good place to put a pin in low or not, but that's that was basically, I guess, my sort of approach to it. So Mm -hmm. Um, I guess up next, track four, this is Near Wild Heaven. So what do you think? You said that um, Low is the best Liz Fair song that Liz Fair never did. Mm-hmm. This is one of the best 10,000 Maniacs songs that the 10,000 Maniacs never did. Oh, oh, touche. Oh, my and, God, you're right. And yet Kate Pearson from um, the, B50, the, the B-52s is does the backing, does some of the backing vocals on this, and maybe that's what made me think of it. And they would later do a song called Photograph with uh, Natalie Merchant in... Mm-hmm. 93? Yeah, that's like, I have, she's about to jump ship at that point. Yeah, she, it was right around the time that, that she left 10,000 Maniacs, and that's a great song. If it you, is. If um, but yeah, this is, it's very much, and and I mean that as a compliment to both 10,000 Maniacs and R.E.M. I mean, I, I love this song. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, I would pay a, a lot of money to, to listen to a 10,000 Maniacs cover of Near Wild Heaven. That would be fucking mm-hmm. amazing. That, that's, yeah. a, that's a good idea. Yeah. One of the things that, that, that's kind of weird about about this song, <coughs> though, is as a whole, I think you could say that this album, Out of Time, is sort of defined by a little bit more of a country type of sound. And I don't mean that sort of getting drunk singing songs about your pickup truck type of country song i mean more country as a method of instrumentation as opposed to subject matter and this is really the first kind of upbeat song on the on the album that doesn't have any kind of fucking hip-hop or something into it and hasn't been killed by by pop radio but the other thing is lead vocals by mike mills now he didn't take the lead very often in REM songs but those songs when he did or at least he makes a heavy contribution to vocally I don't know what happens but there's this weird transformation that the band undergoes it, it's almost like it's a heart transplant in a weird kind of way because we've got for all intents and purposes a different front man for this song yeah and he's not the most dynamic singer in the entire world on the one hand but on the other hand 
I rarely skip past a song that Mike Mills sings sings the lead for. You know, this he's just got a very interesting sounding voice. Yeah, he he does, and it it works. It, his voice works really really well with the um, with the tune here. It and it does reflect its time. There were other songs, other bands that that did songs like this that were never really cracked the mainstream. Um, for some reason, the Connells come to mind, <laughs> and and uh, a song like uh, "Stone Cold Yesterday" or something like that. Whereas this sort of very there's there's a poppiness to it, and yet you know the word alternative kind of got washed out as a result of of the way the '90s mainstream changed. But at this point in time, there truly is an alternative music scene. REM. Was find it the, in a weird yeah yeah i mean because like alternative when 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 pearl jam nirvana soundgarden stone temple pilots allison chains etc came along and they were labeled as alternative i never knew if it it never felt the right way that that way to me they were just kind of rock mixed with a little bit of that alt rock thing um the word modern the, the modern rock label actually fit a little bit better alternative to me was at least at this point, was REM. And then it was stuff from England like The Cure and The Smiths. Or I was going to throw in Jane's Addiction, too. Jane's Addiction. Jane's Addiction is very much an alternative band. Um, I think they got lumped in with with the, uh, the, the, uh, the other groups from that era because of just when one or two songs hit, you know. Yeah. And, and the fact that Perry Farrell started Lollapalooza and I think that's where they got lumped in with those bands because of just they you know because they just wanted to be you know keep keep a movement going but but yeah I think you're right and uh and this this and and a lot of the songs of the album feel like alternative uh music in a in a very good way and you know it's actually and I hate putting labels on things like that but it it makes a lot of sense well one of the songs that like sometimes you you hear like a song comes along and it kind of defines I can't say a generation because it's not necessarily that far reaching, but it does mm-hmm. it does adequately represent a given genre, especially a genre that is very little understood. Yeah. And in a weird kind of way, the song that I would point to as saying this is an alternative song is Tyler by the Toadies. Okay. And the reason for that was like the first time that I heard it. I mean, for let you know, this is a song like that song. Every breath you take is, without a doubt, that is a song about obsession. It's about stalking. It's it's a lot of I think very negative manifestations of romantic love. Oh yeah. But it's done in a very tender and I would a heartfelt musically and very kind of radio friendly type of way. It, and it's, it's, yeah, it, there's an irony that gets lost on a lot of people yeah and there is absolutely no irony about tyler it where again it's one of those songs that it kind of wears its premise on its sleeve and not so much that but i meant more like the fact that they're willing to talk about this in a very straightforward kind of way sing us like write a rock song about it i remember hearing this and notwithstanding the fact that this is just a very fucking cool sounding song it's just kind of cool to listen to Mm -hmm. you know and I thought, holy shit, this is what alternative music needs to be, you know? And that the Toadies, they are way far past, I would say, like the even the like the second wave 
alternative movement. They're mm-hmm. just at this point just another alternative band. But it's kind of weird that I don't know why, but there's something about that song. And here we are talking about a different band when we should be talking about Near Wild Heaven. But oh, nevertheless, um, I don't know what it was about that song that made me think this is kind of it, it sort of epitomizes that genre in ways that no other song that I'd heard up to that point quite had, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? No, that, that makes total sense. And it, it's, it's always interesting how it's the songs you never expect that define certain eras or genres or something for you. Yeah, because, I mean, if you just think about it, on paper, that song should either be Smells Like Teen Spirit or, I guess, maybe to stick with Nirvana, In Bloom. Mm -hmm. In Bloom is that song that everybody looks back at, and it's got this sort of, like, the music video especially is, in a weird kind of way, it is, it looks nothing like the way the song sounds, and that's why the video works, because it's so contradictory and ironic. Yeah. And that should be more the alternative poster poster child and it's just for me at least it's just not so i don't know why but there you have it but you're right this is a very this is in a weird kind of in in its own way this is definitely this it's truly alternative you know this is something else which is Mm -hmm. i thought kind of the point of alternative yeah yeah but then we get endgame almost instrumental yeah and it comes between this isn't the first time I'd heard an instrumental track on an album um, I had heard uh, the two that came to mind as I was listening to this two instrumental tracks on an album Eruption ah. off of Van Halen and um, and it's the in the middle of Kill Em All there's a Cliff Burton bass piece, Metallica's oh. first album called Anesthesia, parentheses, pulling teeth. The thing is about those two is that they lead into the next song. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, with Eruption, I can't hear the end of... Uh, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, this, this video of a girl playing Eruption. She was probably like 12 or 13, playing Eruption on a guitar. Went viral, and it was being passed around... Um, on Facebook and stuff, and I remember most of the comments were, "This is awesome," but I wanted her to start playing. You really got me. Yeah. Because that's basically the, the your brain says this leads into this, and yes. and with anesthesia, it's the same thing where um, it leads into Whiplash. I think is the next song on the album. Even though you can listen to either of those songs separately, this doesn't necessarily do this. It's a weird bridge between two songs that are very, very, very much the complete opposite of it. Because um, Near Wild Heaven was this very pop, alternative pop song, and the next song is Shiny Happy People. And this is sort of, it's almost instrumental. I like the vocal part. Mm-hmm. Um, yet it doesn't it, it bridges the two pieces or something or provides a break between the two pieces but it doesn't connect 
as much as you would expect with with a uh, um, uh, an instrumental. Oh, and the the other instrumental I keep thinking of is the very very opening track of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. How could I forget that? I love the piano piece. Yeah, and yeah, it, it's weird. Yeah, for uh, I thought you know every because you know how it is you're a stupid freshman in high school and so everything needs to be like or one thing needs to everything needs to be like this one particular cool thing that you heard but I, but I remember thinking at the time holy shit every album should start off with a piano piece no, that, that would be fucking terrible no no but it got if <laughs> damned if it didn't work for yeah. for melancholy but uh, but yeah this you know I when I got this album and I was a I want to say I was 10 years old when this album came out, but I think I was like 11 or 12 before I finally got my hands on the CD. Uh-huh. And I remember sitting here listening to this song, and, uh, or this album, I should say, and I came to end the game, and it's kind of weird. My reaction to it then is nothing at all like what it is now. And it's like these days, I just fucking, ch- I don't know why, but I just, I cherish this song today, you know? When it, I mean, I, I don't, I truly don't think I've ever listened to Endgame all by itself. I've always listened to it in the context of listening to this entire album. Yeah, me too. But when I was listening to this CD when I was a kid, it was, first off, just to listen to an entire album when you're a kid is kind of a tough slog to begin with anyway. But mm-hmm. I remember I got to Endgame and I'm like, what is this crap? You know why? Why is this here? What What am I doing? Why this is, this is retarded. Like sing something, dude. And there's, it's not even singing. It's like it's chanting or something, or crooning. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck. But on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's there's not so much vocal delivery to this that that yeah, I mean that I would even feel comfortable calling it an instrumental. On the one hand. But there's no real lyrical content to it either to make it more of like a standard type of song song, you know? Yeah. And so it's, what is it? I, I have no idea. So I just call it almost an instrumental. So. Yeah, because it's not like he's – it's not like this is jazz and he's scatting or something like that. Yeah. You know, and for that, just, we can actually be grateful. I don't think I want to listen to R.E.M. do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But, um, but yeah, he's just sort of – yeah, just uh, uh, providing atmosphere. It it and it shouldn't work, and yet it does. And you know, this is not the last time. By no means is this the last time that REM would do something like this. I mean, they did it again on Automatic for the People. Off the uh-huh. top of my head, I don't I don't remember if they did it for Monster, but they did it. I think really effectively on New Adventures in Hi-Fi with that song Zither. Okay. And I don't want to go so far as to say this is a stock REM trick where they just kind of have this sort of almost instrumental type piece that kind of sets – it just kind of enhances the mood. It doesn't set the mood and it doesn't break it. It just sort of enhances what's already there. Mm -hmm. I don't think this song Endgame – would work as well if you if you placed it after shiny happy people in the running order it actually works really well though placed after near wild heaven you have these sort of i think a kind of like in the headspace that i operate by today a kind of uneven beginning to this album you know because it starts off with 
a song that gets kind of train wrecked, a song that's it's it, 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 which is followed by a song that's been just fucking overplayed, which is followed by a song that I don't even know what the fuck it's about. It just it sounds neat, but it doesn't really say anything. Uh-huh. And then you get to Near Wild Heaven, which is a sort of fun country ish, alternative ish, non Michael Stipe song. And then you get you get into Endgame, and it's like okay. This is REM in a sense kind of better defining what this album is at a time when, you know, at, at a sort of juncture, a, a stage in the game when it needs to happen. You know, it wouldn't be as as effective following shiny, happy people as it is following near wild heaven. No, so running order matters. Yeah, especially since um, uh, I don't I don't have this on on vinyl at all. Um, I have it digitally, so, so and I only ever had it. The only other times I've encountered it was on CD. So I don't know what side one and side two is, but I would assume, based on how you were talking about how one is time and one is what memory, mm-hmm. that "Shiny Happy People" would be the last song on side one, and "Belong" would start side two. Oh no, no, no! Uh, "Shiny okay. Happy People" starts side. Two. Oh, okay, so this is the end of side one. Yes. Okay, then I then my my counting was off. Um, I was told that there'd be no math. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but this this ends so this ends side one, um, which is shiny happy start side two. That makes then that makes a little more sense too. That that this would end part of the album and then the next song would begin the next part of of the album at least musically mm-hmm. it makes sense. Bands don't tend to end a lot of sides. With, you know, uh, you know, big poppy poppy tunes where they they don't tend to bury a lot of. I mean, granted, I, I wouldn't put past REM to bury a tune, um, but they don't tend to bury tunes a lot in you know at the end of a side one. They'll bands will put them out there at least a little bit a little bit more. And you know, you think of some of the some some of the albums I'm thinking of. Yeah, there are some slightly slower songs that that finish a first a first side. And this kind of, and if this is going to end that time side, calling it Endgame, and it's a little clever, yeah. It may, I mean, it makes it makes sense if they're thinking in terms of a side one or side two, and if they're if you're not, if you're thinking of it fully through, because most of us, like you said, this is the middle of the CD. This is really the 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 golden age of the CD, mm-hmm. the height of the CD, and CDs you listen to all the way through. And then sometimes you had a stereo where you had the program button or the shuffle button. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you didn't always listen to the songs in, this, in the order in which they intended to listen to them. Um, and you could go like with a, a tape was a pain in the ass to to flip. at least with a record. You could pick the needle up. Yeah, a tape, a tape. You had to fast forward to that shit. But um, with this, it's like if you're going to listen to it all the way through, it does kind of bridge between two very, very happy songs. Yes. And. Speaking of happy, that maybe is a good little segue into shiny, happy people. I must say, I think there are certain songwriters and performers out there who get it's like they get saddled with something you know and they're never completely able to shake it off 
And I think a good example of this is that legendary Pete Townsend line, sung by Roger Daltrey, but nevertheless, uh, it's, it was written by Pete Townsend that says, I hope I die before I get, before old. I get old. Yeah. And you talk about a line that came back to haunt him so fucking many times. But nevertheless, it did. This, I think, is a little bit different in as much as this is an entire song that people kind of not in a mean-spirited kind of way but they did kind of pillory michael stipe with this and i guess in the i'm like mocking i suppose mm-hmm. you know this because this was I, I don't think the song was as overplayed as losing my religion thank god no but it was still i think a a, a fairly big radio hit and I think the band ultimately came to resent this song's this song's success, or maybe they just came to resent this song point blank. I don't know. From what I've read, they don't like <clears throat> this song very much. Um, and I know um, I remember the backlash because there it's it's part of Dennis Leary's No Cure for Cancer album. And I also don't go for this other thing now with MTV being so big where you get a band that gets a hit video and all of a sudden they think that they're like icons and they can tell us how to feel about environmental issues and how to vote and stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Like R.E.M. Shiny people. Hey, 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 hey. Pull that bus over to the side of the pretentiousness turnpike, all right? I want everybody off the bus. I want the shiny people over here and the happy people over here, okay? I represent angry, gun-toting, meat-eating fucking people, all right? Sit down and shut the fuck up, Michael. It worked at the time. Sometimes Leary's material is a little bit dated, and mm-hmm. he gets into... Because um, there was... There were a whole other... Uh, yeah, there were a whole... There's a whole other bit about rock music that's actually much better in, in that album than that, but that's, that's what I thought of when I heard this. And then I wrote, I should hate this song. Yes. But I don't. <laughs> I don't. And I... And I'm listening to it in the car, and I'm like singing along to it. Part of me thinks it's Kate Pearson's vocal duet. Yes. It, part of it's her, and I think that's what it is. It's this. It's since it's a duet with essentially not all the B-52s, just her. That I think that I think that saves it in a big way mm-hmm. because it's just um, because they are very much a pop a pop band mm-hmm. in a in a really good way. Um, you know, Love Shack was played to death, but I love Rome, and I love a lot of their, or, uh, uh, you know, Rock Lobster and, and um, Your Own Private Idaho and, and those songs and stuff like that. And, and she has a great voice for this. She does. Um, and, and I think she saves it in a way. And the, you know, there's something very Brian Wilson in the orchestra part leading into the, um, leading into the main melody. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would later try to he would there were times where Stipe obviously or, or the band as a whole were, were trying to were trying to almost out Brian Wilson Brian Wilson um, at my most beautiful is a great example of that um, yeah they were actually in a very good way arguably very successful at least meeting that standard I would say yeah you can't overlook the entire Brian Wilson influence I think on I don't see that's the thing I mean I never understood if I was never clear on is is REM influenced by Brian Wilson or is this specifically a Mike Mills type of thing? I mean, it, it's not it like it really be. matters, but 
Yeah. I don't know. It's it, it's one of those things that I never noticed until somebody pointed it out to me. But it's mm-hmm. like, you know, holy shit, you know, you're right, you know. So, but yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, because Mike, Mill, Mike Mills always came off to me as the the one with the pop intellectual, like the one the he's the guy who studied pop music. Yes. You know, he's the guy who knew like to use it. We both read comic books. He's the comic book writer who was a fan who comes in and takes over a character and knows that character and knows the continuity and uses it, you know, and, and plays with it and does it in a way that's respectful, Jeff. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and I think that's what Mike Mills in, came off to me, at least as the, the songs that I've heard that are definitely his, where he like seriously probably studied a lot of the pop music that he listened to and really paid attention to what he was hearing and really picked out what he liked and knew what how he could fit it into his band. Because Michael Stipe, to me, is always the one who sometimes does take himself a little too seriously. You know, he's not Bono. No. But there were points where he was he was getting up. He was getting up there. Well, the the way I, I always kind of thought of it is that Bono is what Michael Stipe could have been had someone not been there to pull him back yeah. and say, dude, you, you, you don't want to do that, you know? And there's nobody in, our, in, a, in a U2 to tell Bono, shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think – I'm not going to say that, they're all, that the other band members are just kind of there and they're along for the ride, but – no one there seems to be willing to say, shut the fuck up. Here's a pop song, you know? <laughs> and I, the, my view of REM whenever they write songs is that it's this sort of controlled chaos that you have people with very different points of view on what the song should be. Yeah. And what ends up happening is what we hear in the recorded version is basically whoever, whichever side won that war. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, that is not, that cannot be a, a healthy way to run a band, but damned if the results don't work. I mean, and well, and, and that's, I think why some of the later things by the band don't always work. Um, especially after Bill Barry leaves. Yeah. That it like, you know, people leave bands all the time. You know, band. There have been bands who change guitarists. There have been bands who change drummers. Nobody remembers the bass player anyway, so there you go. I disagree, sir. I'm kidding. Okay. I'm kidding. Okay. Um, It's just, (laughs) it's just kind of the. It is a joke, though. It's a joke. That's yes, the running joke. No, you. I can name. I can name several bass players that I remember. But you know, but bass players, drummers, and occasionally lead guitarists and rock bands do tend to cycle out here and there. And the, the front man is the one, I mean, cause there have been people who go in and out of the Rolling Stones and yet the Rolling Stones is not the Rolling Stones without Mick and Keith. Yes. I mean, you can, and you could add a couple other people to that, but Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, it's kind of their band. And, and a lot yeah, of it's, it's their band. When, with, when you get into up and you get into the later things, even though there are some real flashes of brilliance in some of that later stuff, Bill Barry not being there, you really do feel like something's missing. Well, and to me, that kind of speaks to 
you know, like you were saying, the the assumption is that you know when the drummer hits the road, mm-hmm. how much of a difference is that really going to make? I mean, it's just a guy who's keeping time. You know, yeah. how how can that possibly make? But you know, you listen to a band like Pearl Jam, who, for whom you know the drummer situation was kind of an ongoing concern. Yeah, and you suddenly see no the drummer. It, it's more than just like setting the beat it, in a weird kind of way. It's like he sets the tone, you know, mm-hmm. and I can't think of a band that fought a, harder against. Well, maybe not fought, but were more deeply affected by whoever is playing the drums at that moment than Pearl Jam. There's a very uh, I mean, I think the the results kind of speak for themselves. They were never really commercially viable again once Dave Aberzis left yeah. the band. And when you think about it, he started off as a hired gun, but he was the guy that, coincidentally or not, just happened to be playing the drums whenever they had almost 100% of their biggest mainstream success. And I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where I think the proof is kind of in the pudding. You know, the the drummer – anyway, I can't believe we're – anyway, that's a major thing. Well, no, because few few artists can do something like on the order of like – well, like what Springsteen has done, where you have Springsteen, with the exception of the two albums that he put out actually around this time, Human Touch and Lucky Town, which are not particularly good. But you got some Springsteen stuff that's clearly solo in a sense that, you know, you can tell that's him doing his thing. And then you have, even though he writes pretty much all the songs, him with the E Street Band. And, and there's it's a different dis- world. There's yeah. a discernible difference, and in some cases, he is really. Su- in some cases, he's not so good with the formula, but in other cases, he's really successful with that formula. And and it it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to pull off. You know, I mean, I don't think I think if you remove one of the Beatles from that equation, you don't have you don't have the band in, in a big way. You know, I don't like I like Chris Honeywell has said a few times on episodes of long play how good Ringo stars drumming how precise it actually is and, you know is is the beat are the Beatles the same th- is this is it the same thing it's like you know if you take Ringo star out of the out of half the Beatles albums does it still sound the same and the Beatles themselves would have said no I mean no. the way they they always talked about Ringo he was in a I would never in a million years have thought this was the role he played in the band but he was sort of the linchpin of it all. And, you know, they always said that, you know, we have a band if we have Ringo. If we don't have Ringo, we don't have a band. And it's like the two are sort of one to the – or rather those two concepts are like mutually exclusive. Have Ringo, have band. Don't have Ringo, don't have band. Yeah. And that was just kind of the tone of their remarks over the years. And I thought, really, this guy? But you're right. I mean, you know, if to actually listen to his playing, you know, he's better than he gets credit for. I'll, I, I tend to agree with you. And if you, I don't know if you ever saw the um, behind the music of all shows did an REM episode around the time that Up came out. Yes, and um, I remember watching it with my roommate Dennis, and Dennis was so pissed because they could in the in the show they completely skipped over New Adventures and Hi Fi. Um, uh, but unforgivable. But the um, but uh, Up was the first album without Bill Berry, right? Yes. Okay. So when they start talking about that, and it's pretty fresh by that point because the the behind the music piece came out 
when Up was released. It was around that cycle in that series where a lot of bands were going and doing the bio thing as kind of a backdoor way of promoting the new album because the, yep. the show always ended up with a new album. Yes. And um, if you watch the interviews, you can kind of – I mean, granted, the show's 20 years old. I don't know where you can get a hold of it, but they're still – smarting from this and you could hear that they're a little bit especially like you know mike mills is a little bit resentful um because bill perry was like you know but if you think about it like first of all the last tour almost killed him yes and it's just like and and maybe it just it kind of went out on him and he was just like i i'm done i'm gonna retire you know he was your it's your prerogative you can do whatever you want when you have that much money and you if you want to retire and and go you know farm for the rest of your life do it well i mean i guess since we're on we're on the subject what I liked about Ari, because you and you kind of touched on touched on it a while ago that you know yeah. there are certain bands out there where members just kind of cycle through, you know. Mm-hmm. And what I liked about REM is that they kind of had this sort of one big happy family type of image, mm-hmm. which I don't think was completely true when you start talking about. No, they're more like a real family. They all fight with. <laughs> yeah, and but you know. There was a a camaraderie there that him leaving the band sort of pierces a little bit because, by all accounts, this was not necessarily an acrimonious split. It's not like he was chased out of the band and fired with extreme prejudice and I never want to see your your scaly ass again or anything. No, it's not Dave Mustaine. Yeah, no, it was nothing like that. You talk about getting canned. That guy got canned. Yeah, but, and it's and it's not even the Van Halen David Lee Roth split. You're right. He just, just you know, kind of it was an amicable split. Yeah. Yeah. And on the one hand, there's nothing personal to it in one sense, but on but on the other hand, you know, this is in a weird kind of way your family. The, these are your brothers, and you're leaving them, and yeah. that's they're they're going to have an emotional reaction to that. I can guarantee you that, and. I remember that moment, and I think, I think um, uh, Burt Downs was. Uh, it's been so long since I've seen that episode, but their manager, Burt Downs, mm-hmm. he was in that episode too, and I got the idea he was not hamming it up for the camera. This really did affect him, you know. Mm-hmm. Bill leaving the band, and he actually did get uh, choked up. And when people fake cry, you can always tell because like. It's like your forehead does this weird thing. Yeah. And when when you cry for real versus when you fake cry, you you can't really fake that. Your forehead either wrinkles up like that or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And his it, it it was it was like a prune. It was just all wrinkly and his eyes they really were watering. And he did this other kind of it's like a grief tell. It's like when you grit your teeth and yeah. because it's like shit, this hurts so bad. I just want to, I want to feel something other than what I'm feeling right now. And for some reason, the manifestation of that is gritting your teeth. I don't get it, but that's it's what we all do. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. But and he was doing that, and this like really did affect him. And it was this is I got the impression they wouldn't be much, they wouldn't have been hit very much harder if the guy had actually just up and died. If he'd actually died on that stage, 
I don't think it would have affected them much worse because this is how badly they they took him just leaving the band. Yeah. And it wasn't just a commercial thing for them. They were really and but there is this personal dimension to it where the anger, you know, it's like uh, you are part of a business unit. You know, we depend upon you to make a living and now you're leaving us. And what is this band if you're not in it? I don't yeah. know, and I don't want to find out. But you're not giving me much of a choice, and I there would be a lot of resentment. I could kind of see that. So yeah. I re- it's been like twenty, not twenty years, but it's been close almost to twenty years, years yeah. since I've seen that. But I I think I remember that moment. And you're right. You know, they did. You know, through I guess trying to be diplomatic and probably some careful editing of the interviews, yeah. they probably did bury a lot of, I don't know, hostility, but. That there is some, because he because he, he didn't leave to go solo. No, you know he didn't, or he didn't leave because they kicked him out because he had a raging coke habit. You know, it, there there are so many reasons that people get kicked out of bands or they leave mm-hmm. that are way more like almost acceptable on some level, or the anger from the other members of the band is acceptable. He was working through something and decided he'd had enough and he wanted to essentially retire. He quit his job and it, it it's, it's hard. I think it, it's hard to understand and maybe for them to understand that too, because it's just, you're right. It's, we're part of business, you know, we're part of this unit and you're, you're breaking us up and in a way that we can't necessarily process it. Because I think if he had decided, decided I'm going to go, I'm going to go form the Bill Berry band or the, you know, yeah, that the Bill really Berry project straw. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, Oh, well then fuck you then. And, you know, and, and we're going to go out and, you know, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to hire a studio session guy and we're going to do an album and then we're going to find a drummer, you know? Yeah. Get me wet Max Weinberg, you know I mean? <laughs> so, get him away from Conan, you know? So, uh, you know, and, and so yeah, his leaving and, but, uh, but getting back to the album. Yes. <laughs> Tiny okay. happy people here. Let's shiny happy people. Yeah, it's just it's a it's a song that that you should hate because it's and and the band doesn't like it yet. And um and and it and it, we do have to mention that in 1999, I had to look this up. It was the late 90s. I think it was 99. Um REM did slightly rewrite this for Sesame Street. Ah. Uh. Yes. So they sang Furry Happy Monsters. And the Kate Pearson was done by I looked this up because I was kind of curious because I looked at this clip and, and it's kind of it's, it's a kid's show clip. So it's it's fun. And Sesame Street, Sesame Street is still does some very, very fun things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they're on there and they're singing it, you know, the way that they sing it. And uh, there's a Kate Pearson Muppet. And she is voiced by one of the people who would go on to do Avenue Q, which I thought was a cute little bit of trivia there. So, mm. but yeah, so it's, I just wanted to at least mention Furry Happy Monsters before we went on to the next song. And what is the next song? Is a piece called Belong. Again, this is another one of those 
almost an instrumental, although less so than Endgame. This actually, this actually has like some spoken word like, bits to it. I don't know. This is a this is different. It's this is him like <sighs> Henry Rollins used to do spoken word with music, and although Henry, Henry Rollins is a lot more intense, you know. Henry Rollins can read you his shop, his grocery shopping list at the at this point, and you will tremble. Yeah, and you'll be like, okay, okay, I'll get the right thing. Um, <laughs> although Henry Rollins, to his credit, in any interview I've ever seen him in, has a wicked sense of humor that that I always appreciate. But um, but yeah, it's it's that's the only thing I can compare it to. It's this, but then again, it's it's or or it's oh god, it's it's. It's what spoken word, thankfully, is not anymore. You know, I don't know if I, I, I fall I fall down a spoken word poetry rabbit hole every once in a while because I use it a lot in my classes, and there's a lot more honesty to what spoken word poetry really is. But this is what like people think of sometimes when they think of of stuff like that, where it's just like you know, here let me make this serious statement about something, and there's music in the background. And if this were the '60s, we'd be beat next into the jazz. Yeah. But it's but it is it much like some of the other songs on this album, it's very, very much of its time. I could see this being performed in a coffee house by somebody by some band. But REM just knows how to do this. Right. And yeah, there's a little bit of there's a pop book in here. There is, yeah, and it, it, it just kind of makes you think: is this dramatic or is it melodramatic? And I tend to think it's a little bit more of that second one. Yeah. But in a weird kind of way, I don't know if it's because it's it's not as melodramatic as it could be. Mm-hmm. Number one, and number two, like we were saying a minute ago about Bono, this was not something that defined REM, or for that matter, even really defined Stipe. And I think that's why he's able to get away with this a little bit more whereas I think even at the time without the benefit of YouTube or anything like that there would have been parodies about this from here to Armageddon had YouTube attempted something like this where and in fact there were I mean like none so you know uh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's I guess that's not as theoretical as I was making yep. it but um, or or the end of uh, going back to 87 the end of Bull the Blue Sky Oh yeah, yeah. Where it's just like you know, let me be earnest about that. I can't even do an Irish. I'm not even going to attempt. But like, like maybe so earnest, and there's this whole spoken thing that ends up outside. It's America. Outside, it's like yeah, okay, we get, we get the point. We get the point. And you know, I remember people were lampooning Numb, and I don't. I, I mean, I, I know that people have joked about Bullet the Blue Sky. I don't know of anybody like actually making parodies, but that that would be kind of difficult to parody anyway. But yeah. Um, this it's like it got a free pass precisely because of the fact that it's not like they're making a career out of this damn it dude bono fucking did or tried to yeah well because octon baby and zuropa were within a couple of years of each other and it's this effort by them to they change their image entirely yet and still deliberately had the, it, on, yeah oh, completely on purpose and um but to their credit, they made, they made no bones about it. They 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 knew exactly what they were doing, and they did it with this bombast that only a band like you two could do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I think they they knew, and I think that's why when pop came out, which is uneven as an album anyway. Yeah, pop seemed to me, and this is my personal opinion, seemed to me to be their reaction to all the 
being made fun of. They, they were just kind of making fun of themselves on some level, especially with a few of the pieces on that, even though it just kind of landed with a thud yeah. in, in, in many ways. I will uh, say this, though. One of the absolute best songs you two ever did is, that, oddly enough, you find it on pop, you know, uh, that song Gone. Yeah. I could listen to that all fucking night. Yeah. But you're right. This this song is it's kind of buried on the second side of the album where it's deep into the CD. Mm-hmm. Um, it is between two songs. Um, one that's a very, very poppy, happy tune that they did get made fun of for. Yes. And then so there's a contrast between the, the you know the, there's this contrast between one two three four songs and then the next song is half a world away, which is um, a song that almost belongs on automatic for the people. I was going to ask. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but yeah, but belong just um, yeah. I think it's just I think that that it being buried where it is, it's just kind of like Endgame a piece that, um, you know, they're trying a lot of different things out. And I think, I think that's also important to note is that, um, losing my religion came to define a lot, what a lot of people thought of this album so much that I think, I mean, I I know at least at one point or another, I always associated that and shiny, happy people, which were much different than radio free Europe or don't go back to Rockville or, or, Pretty persuasion. Yeah, like you know, much of their early stuff. Um, and you know, there was it was it wasn't a complete one eighty, but in a bit, in, in many ways, it was a huge shift. And I, I tended to think of for years before I really did sit down and listen to the album all the way through a few times. I did tend to think of this era of REM just being those songs and not realizing that there is a real mishmash of different styles throughout this album. And it's like they are trying different things out to see where they want to go. And I think when you go out to the next album, they're a little bit more but fine. And then they turn around a monster and do something completely different, which um, works on some level and doesn't work on another level. But like, yeah, I was going to say, they, they ultimately did pay the price. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, so I guess if you have nothing else to say about Belong, we can go on to. Indeed. Yes. So let's talk about Half a World Away. So this is another one of those kind of simple, enjoyable acoustic songs about which I I have no idea what this thing is, is about, honestly. I bet it's like it doesn't matter. Yeah, Stipes like, yeah, Stipes basically said the only person who understands the lyrics of the song is me. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, you do you, and I'll listen to the songs. The song's a beautiful song. It has a very odd time signature. Um, it. I don't know if it's. I was trying to figure it out, and I'm, my ear is not as good as it used to be because I, I, I'm out of practice. But it was like six fourths or something like that. It's it's not your typical time signature pop song. There's harpsichord. Yeah, that's and that's weird all by itself, but like it works. Somehow. Yeah, and the rhythm. It's if you if you if you tune out the lyrics and you listen to the tune, it's it's not a waltz. 
but it's very rhythmic in that sense that and it's very steady and flows very very well in a way that um that a lot of the others you know that a lot of the other songs don't necessarily in a, in a very um smooth way as opposed to what rock is usually it's you know it's percussion is very very much a part of rock and there's there's none of that in here um and like i was saying a few minutes ago this and maybe it's because like one of my favorite rem songs of all time is night swimming and Hmm, interesting choice well not so much if you know that i played the piano Ah, okay. No, that makes no instantly. Yeah. I understand. Okay. Yeah. And I can see you actually, you know, like playing that at a party and charming. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm. yeah that never happened. Even though I kind of wish it did. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, damn it. <laughs> you could have been like, Billy Joel. <laughs> oh yeah. It's like it, in in the in the realm of like you know here it, the the alternate Earth version of me you know places for some girl somewhere and it's just like you know ah uh, but um. I did play a Bill Joel song or two for my for my my wife when we were dating, so I did get that. But but yeah, this but um, I, this reminds me of that, and it remind it really does fit in with the with with that album quite a bit. Although I, I I kind of consider, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, but I've always considered out out of time and automatic for, of the for the people to be almost kind of like a set, like because they came out right after one another. Pretty much. But, but and they're almost like companions to each other. Like they're two pieces of the of the same uh, of a puzzle that was that the band was putting together back in the early part of the 1990s. And, and Monster was them kind of saying, "Okay, we're done with that. We're moving on to this now." And um, so that's why. And and Half World, it's just this. Uh, um, it's a, ba- a ballad almost, and it's it, it's gorgeous. It's it's almost like you. It's about solitude. I guess, in a sense, that's what the lyrics seem to seem to be about. Although it, I kind of want this song to remind me of somebody. It doesn't. <laughs> you know, there's no there's no memory involved with this. I've just always loved this song, hmm. and this is the type of song that, um, like, I, I the very very beginning of the show, I was talking about how, like, you know, it was almost like I was listening to REM in secret, um, and. This is the type of song that my friends at the time who were like just constantly listening to the Black Album and Ride the Lightning and Master Puppets, all good albums in their own regard, um, would turn around and call you a pussy for liking. You know, like that's sort of like and again, shit self-esteem when I was like, you know, this old and and but this is one of those um this is one of those songs that that fit into some of the stuff that I, you know, that I would end up listening to toward the end of high school, like the Ten Thousand Maniacs, yeah. you know, Our Time and Eat It, and 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 those and those albums. And I'm I'm glad I never kind of gave up on, on on still listening to this because this is a band that that I've liked for many many years, and and songs like this are the reason. And liking songs like this, which are not very like a lot of the other stuff in the album does help you if you listen to the whole album does help you want to get a little deeper and deeper into their catalog and then you discover the other stuff that they've done which is completely different but rewarding at the same time right i kind of always regarded you know half a world away this is one of those this is maybe like as far as well i can't say this is like the quintessential deep cut 
on an mm-hmm. al- uh, on an album, but this is a deep cut, and it's maybe the quintessential deep cut on this album. Mm-hmm. That you, it's a little bit more like pedigree. I think like the next song that's coming up. I think literally anybody could play this at any Fourth of July or any party or or just mm-hmm. or pretty much any setting really, except I guess a funeral. And it's just it it. It's a fun song, and it's just good to listen to. Half a World Away is a little bit different in that, yeah, I've got really fucking no idea what this song is about. But to me, it is, it, it in a weird kind of way, it's like it typifies what Out of Time as, a, as an album is trying to be. Mm-hmm. And it does so in a very acoustic, pop songy type of way that is sung by Michael Stipe. And when you think about it, there are not as many of those types of songs on this album as you first think when you really start listening. Yeah. You know, and so it's it, it, it's really when I guess you start getting to Half a World Away, you realize this is a great album and this is like the strength of what an album can be on the one hand. On the other hand, it does... It's right around the time when you start doing the song by song analysis, you kind of start realizing you look at what's come before. And this is a little bit of a disjointed kind of album. It is. You don't hear that whenever you listen to the album as a whole. It's only when you start listening to it on a more like on a sort of. uh, Like a a pickier kind of per song type of basis, you know, and so anyway, half a world away is and I would. I do feel comfortable saying that, yeah, this is sort of the the typical, the representative slice of what this album is in a weird kind of way. But it's yeah. strange to say that about a, a, a deep cut, but at the same time, it's undeniable. So there you have it. I don't know. But I frankly just don't have as much to say about this song as clearly you do. But I it, do, but I've like said hmm? – but I pretty much said everything I wanted to to say because it's the musicality of it that got me yeah. more than anything else. One of the things, though, that stood out for me about this song is that this is a kind of – this is a sort of unusual melody and like I guess the world of pop music. But at the same time, it's kind of a typical Michael Stipe kind of melody, you know, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, mm-hmm. da-da-da-da. And it, it, it kind of has this relent- – or it would be relentless if it wasn't – an acoustic song. If you tried to do yeah. the song uh, electric, I don't think it would work. I don't think it would work either. So it, ha- it's, it, there are very few songs that have to be acoustic when you really think about it. Mm-hmm. This is one of them. So, I also, and one last thing to say before we get into the next song, the fact that it's not, there is no song in this album that's more than five minutes long. And like, I could see the Dave Matthews band trying to do a song like this, but it would be like six and a half minutes live. And uh, I, that, that's yeah. too much. Yeah. The song's compact as well. And I think that's that that's part of it. <clears throat> now, up next, we've and I don't even friggin because I didn't actually number my list here. So I don't even know what friggin number this is. But number next is Texarkana. a little bit of a this is a weird one in that this is I could see something like this uh, a song like this musically on 
maybe not document, but maybe something more like Dead Letter Office or it or mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, one of the predecessors. I mean, just pick your favorite, like you know, Fables of the Reconstruction. I could see this on one of those where the music of it, that especially the way it begins, like the the first like maybe second or so of the song. It yeah. just seems very throwback REM to me. It, it's. I'm not going to say that it <clears throat> that it clashes with everything else on the album because it doesn't. Mm. It's just a little bit more an eye on what REM has sounded like in the past. It's not. It doesn't completely betray what Out of Time is as an album musically, but it doesn't completely live up to it either. You know. It. Um, it's. I. This was one of the few songs that I looked up just just out of curiosity as to how it came about. And I usually don't do that when I'm looking at how albums are constructed because I just want to kind of bring my own thing to it. But, you know, trivia just interests me like that. Um, They've never performed. They never performed this live. And it was never actually released yet. It charted on the modern rock charts. Mm hmm. Um, but it was never actually formally released as a single. And that's what the modern rock charts stations used to do every once in a while. They would pull out a, um, a B-side or they'd pull out a, an album cut and just or something that was on like a compilation somewhere and play it because either they the band was big and they wanted to just break from playing something or, or whatever and they did that with with um, Einstein and the Beach the Cal- Counting Crows song is a great example of that mm-hmm. it was like on a sampler compilation for years it was the only way you could get it right. um, the Foo Fighters cover of Darling Nikki is another good example wow. of that uh, to the point where HFS in Washington had to go over to their sister station, find the Prince single, so they could play the two back to back. And this is a good example of that, where it does. You're right. This sounds like an REM song, an older REM song, in the same way. And I and I brought up you two before, but in the same way, when I listen to Octon, maybe there's a total difference in music, and yet it still sounds like you two. And that's what I kind of got from this, where it's kind of a companion to that, where it's like this might be a little bit different in some way or another but at the same time this sounds like an old R.A.M. song and um, I think it was written for this album Yeah. so it's not like this is something they had left over sitting in the can and they were like okay we'll throw this on here now um, and Mike Mills does the vocals yeah and again is this is um, this is not I, I think it's a little bit different from Near Wild Heaven in that you know the attitude of the music is just it's it's a it's forgive the pun a world away from yeah uh near wild heaven what we're hearing in texarkana but uh, it's still i guess the it's up to the mike mill standard you know it sounds like it doesn't clash i guess is what i'm saying and by all rights i guess maybe it should but i just i really do cherish those songs where Mills took uh, 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 took the lead. The mm-hmm. problem is that he's got about... He, I don't know if he's as bad as Michael Stipe when it comes to enunciating. <laughs> but he's not exactly the most... Maybe it's just the, the fact that they typically wanted to bury his voice in the mix as though he was still doing background. I have no yeah. idea. But it's not... I think it actually kind of works for the for the song because... 
it's kind of I don't mean this as a pejorative, but it is sort of generic in in a way. It's a fun pop song. Don't get me wrong, but it's a little yeah. bit generic. And, you know, as far as, you know, the lyrical subject matter. So maybe this is another one of those songs where it doesn't really matter what the song is about about. And, mm-hmm. and you know, a song titled Texarkana, I think I can kind of figure out what that song's about, at least in part. It's mm-hmm. about fucking Texarkana. Texarkana, yeah. yeah. But for whatever reason, you know, whatever it is that is motivating these lyrics, written apparently by Mike Mills, too. Mm-hmm. It's like it's irrelevant. You know, it's yeah. the song isn't about whatever it's about. The song is about, for some reason, I just picture all i don't know why but i just picture all four of the band members driving around in this beat up old pickup truck yeah 60s on a dirt country road or something probably in texarkana and listening to the radio and just kind of joking with each other in that kind of one of the things i've noticed is that among friends who have been friends with each other for years or decades they don't really have conversations that begin and end they just it's always middles. Yeah. You know, they always have they're always in the middle of a conversation and they can pick things up just at random. And it's like they're introducing a new subject. If you listen, like you're just sitting there listening, but it's not a new subject. They've talked about this before, but one of them now has a new angle. And this is why you're wrong, asshole. You know, and that's kind of what I thought of, you know, just that weird kind of camaraderie that may or may not have actually existed for this band but nevertheless that's what i think of so it's it's um you just described dinner for geeks yeah <laughs> it's basically you're, is which is the whole setup of the show you're essentially listening on a conversation that's been going on between these people for god you know, only knows, like yeah, god only knows how long and you're right though because i wrote road song but it's not a it's not like a bob seeger you know, get on on the road and we got to, you know, or, or, or Springsteen doing thunder, you know, or like, you know, we're on the road and this is the road. It's just, it feels like you're on the road when you're listening to this. You, you described it perfectly that you're in the car, you're with these people and this is what's playing. And yeah, so it's generic, but it's, it's a good kind of generic. It's a good kind. It's a, it's a well-worked formula. If it's formulaic, it's, it's a formula that works. Agreed. Yeah. And that's about the, I guess the extent of what I had to say. Yeah, pretty much. Me too. Now, we. this is where things maybe take a turn a little bit. I'm going to have to kind of disagree with REM about something here, but we'll come to that uh, in just a second. For right now, country feedback. I'm going to take the lead on this one and say that this, hands down, without a doubt, should have been the last song on the album. And it's not, but it should have been. And I don't know why, but this just, there's something about the vibe of this song. This is the song that you end your concert with. This is the song that you put in as kind of the coda on the album. And not exactly what happens here but the reason i say that is because 
I don't even, again, I don't know what the fuck this song is about, but for some reason, this is my favorite REM song of all time. This has no competition. This is, um, I don't know, there's there's like a longing Mm -hmm. to it, or for what, I have no idea, but there's this, like an emptiness and some, sometimes you hear a piece of music and you know instantly what this makes you think of. Like, there's a song by Oasis called Fucking in the Bushes. And it's it would be completely instrumental, except they have these really just fucking retarded voice samples in there from, like, movies or something like that. But otherwise, it's this really aggressive, really loud, really powerful rock song, like arena rock song, you know? And it's otherwise completely instrumental. And something about that just reminds me of kind of the balls and aggression of being a freshman in high school. And, you know, you're on top of the world. You know the answer to everything. And fuck the whole world. If the world's against you, then you're against the world. And fuck everybody. Fuck you. Fuck me. The world's fucked up. I want to get fucked. And that's why the the name of that song, had it had to have the F word somewhere in in the title of it because... I don't know why, but for some reason that is just such an expressive word and that is such, it is so expressive of the way that you feel, or at least the way I felt when I was 15, when I was pretty sure I could run the entire fucking world and people just get out of the way. And that's kind of what that song makes me think of. And this song, it's 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 a little bit less specific, but it's, it's in a weird kind of way, it's as vivid. There's a longing for something I just don't know what it is. And I think this song is actually kind of better served by the fact that Stipe apparently improvised something like half of the lyrics. Yeah, I read that too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's actually the better for it because sometimes, you know, I don't know if that would necessarily work for everything. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. Pearl Jam's Yellow Leadbetter might have been maybe better served had Vetter actually sat down and come up with lyrics that... Well, I don't know. Make fucking sense. Or at least enunciated what the hell he was saying so that we don't have seven versions of the lyrics out on the internet when you're trying. (laughs) Because that tune of Let Yellow Lead Better is a beautiful, beautiful tune. It's this bluesy, sad... God, I love that song, but the lyrics, like, what the fuck are you saying, man? Yes, yes. And, you know, it's this is what... This is maybe, I guess, like the brighter side of that, like what can go right when you improvise. And the thing about it is there's not really, there's a melody to it just because, you know, the the rules of a song say that there's got to be a melody. It's just, it's not always full. You know, there are times Mm -hmm. when it's like the melody just sort of peters out because fucking Stipe didn't know what to say in that moment. Yeah. And now that's the melody. And so... I don't think this would work for every single song that's ever been recorded by everybody everywhere at all times, without exception. Damned if it doesn't work here. Oh, my God. So anyway, I'm going to shut up and let you talk. No, you're right. And this you're right that this should have been. In fact, when I listen to this album, as much as I like the next song, I keep forgetting this isn't the last song. It feels like the last song of an album. It feels like a coda. And. I would keep me and Honey on the album. I would just, I don't know where I would put it. Maybe between Half a World Away and Texarkana or, or somewhere else on the, because um, that's another essential pop song that you can 
you might be able to place somewhere else in the album. And the order of songs in this album is not as vital as, you know, a, a Sergeant Peppers or something like that, where like, you know, it's clear that these are meant to be this way for this reason. Yeah. Um, or even Abbey road, you could say. Yeah. 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 Um, especially side two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, country feedback is, uh, you put it really, really well. It, it, it's, it's this sort of, it's got the same sort of, same sort of feeling on some level as low, but it's not plotting in a way it, it moves at a, a decent pace. Um, or at least it, it doesn't go too slow. And I think you're right. The fact that Stipe is just basically making this up as he goes along and they're playing with it. I, and um, you can tell that this is something that the band, they, they just turn around and say like, yeah, this works. And and they apparently they really like this song too. Oh, they do. Oh, yeah. For one of those reasons, because I, I, again, I was, I, I get sucked down the, the trivia the whole or whatever, and a couple of them, a couple of them really did enjoy this song. Maybe it was Peter Buck or somebody. Um, <coughs> but but yeah, you're right. I mean, this this should, for all intents and purposes, be the end of the album. Even though the next song is a good song, it's like not the next song is unnecessary. It's just that if you're placing songs on this album, this should be. This should be where we end. Yeah, and yeah. and it, it would tr- it would actually transition if you end this song with this song and you start with Drive on the next album. It actually transitions pretty well. Yeah, that's I that I I'd never actually really. I just thought of that. I swear, like two seconds ago. Yeah, it's it, that is Holy a smooth shit. transition. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a that's a good. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Would have, should have, could have. And, and, yeah. You know, I mean, in the end, ultimately, what does it really matter? Not much. No. But, you know, it's – I try to think of – you and I are kind of the the mixtape generation. Mm-hmm. And the inspiration for a mixtape is basically creating your own – I can't say creating your own album. I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, writing the songs and producing them yourself. More that you're sort of – fashioning an album at its best is supposed to be sort of a a journey and kind of a statement there's an expression that's being made here and whenever you make a mixtape you're basically having to do that same exact thing and you kind of have to hit the highs you have to hit the lows and there there is an art to it you know and whenever i and and so i guess because of that it's when guys like you and me listen to anybody else's album the mixtape gene comes in where like one of the most perfectly balanced albums that i have ever heard like ever is pearl jam's versus album that is one of the most perfectly balanced albums in my opinion anywhere in recent history which i define as my life because hey that's me but that is one of the few times when I can look at an album and say, I wouldn't change a thing. It's perfect just the way it is. And that same critical eye gets applied, I think, to other albums. And sometimes they're weighed in the balance and found wanting. I wouldn't say that's entirely the case here. This is literally the only change I'd make. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say you could you could just flip-flop country feedback with me and Honey. Yeah. And you'd probably... <clears throat> You would strengthen the second the second side two different ways, and that you kind of have a little bit more of a continuous mood of pop songs before you get to the the sort of 
slower finish. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I think that would actually work really well. You don't have to do it that way. There are any number of ways you could have done it, but damn it, man, this thing should have been the final song on the album. Yeah. Well, they're not doing the thing where um, a lot of alt bands um, did in this era, where one song bleeds into the other. Mm-hmm. In that way, um, it's um, why go and black. I think do kind of lead into each other. Yes. I'm thinking I'm, I've got the right two songs correct, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and and there's a couple of songs on other albums that that happen, and you can listen to the songs on their own on on their own, but but you need you very often need to you know put them together like like it's a like like they're all Pink Floyd songs or something because Floyd does that especially on the Wall, but the Wall is the Wall for a reason, and <laughs> here all these songs. They work well in this order, except for if, if we flip-flop it, they work well. And, and when you make your playlist out of them on Spotify or whatever you do, you can do that now. But um, they don't – there's not a critical order for everything. But you're completely right about how the, the mixtape – because the mix – this is, this is so sort of like you know an old man – Back in my day, um, <laughs> when I fought the union, um, but the the way we used to do them was that we only had a certain amount of time. You had to listen to the tam- you didn't necessarily have to listen to the song, but the song had to play. Yes. Like you know, you could you could throw a pair of headphones onto your stereo and every once in a while walk over and like you know listen or take a look at the track listing on the CD just to make sure that you know you paused when when you were changing things out but you sat down and you actually thought of like what how one song and I still do that when I create a playlist on iTunes that isn't just you know something I'm throwing slapping together because it's just a bunch of recent music that I downloaded I don't want to search through just because right. I want to listen to it all at once it, you do think of okay how does this song end and how does the next song begin and how would that play out over the thing I, I wonder if this is how people who produce soundtracks think <laughs> or, or score um, it's almost like you're scoring something in a sense yeah that, and, you, and you need to figure out like what the mood that you're going for is like is mm-hmm. like sometimes I thought you know like there was uh, damned if I can remember uh, all the songs that were on there now but <coughs> I, I did come up with a mix at one point that was basically supposed to be kind of somebody's path to a divorce Mm. Where like, you know, they meet, they have their first date and then they, you know, and there are no shortage of I'm in love type of songs. So, you know, you've got a pretty wide field to choose from there. And then with breakup songs, you've got a pretty, again, tons of tons of choices there. But that sort of first meeting somebody and like the anticipation, the excitement and the uncertainty yeah. of, you know, well, where is this going to go? And, you know, after about, you know, like the six month mark, you kind of know where things are going to go. You don't necessarily know that like the instant you meet somebody, you know, sometimes you do. It's like, I would fucking kill this person if I had to be in, if I had to be in America with them. <laughs> or maybe they'd kill me, you know, who knows? But, but there are very few songs out there that are about like that sort of anticipation of having just first met somebody. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're kind of limited by what's available, but you know, the the idea was that you not only have to match sort of like make this concept of yours work, that there is kind of a progression of things, these ideas that are happening. 
now you actually have to find stuff that actually matches the mood and is instead of just being kind of one note type of songs now there there has to be kind of a finer balance to it is a pain in the fucking balls oh yeah to 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 make this kind of a uh, this type of a mix, but you know, the end result was, you know, because of the fact that I just gotten run over in a pretty serious relationship. And that's why I was putting this thing together. If that wasn't obvious, then, you know, damned if I didn't cry by the time it, you know, I finally listened to it for the first time. I'm like, that's exactly how I feel, man. No, I, I, I've made those tapes too. I made those playlist, you know, and, um, or I burn them to CD, depending on what it was. And the the only real huge advantage to it now, with if you have i let's just say iTunes because that's what I usually use, mm-hmm. is that at least now you can when you've when you've listened to it a couple of times through because no mix you ever make is perfect, and there's always one or two songs where you're you're halfway through that you've listened to it a few times and one or two songs that after a while you're like you know. I don't need this song anymore. At least with iTunes, you can delete the song from the list when you realize this yes. didn't work out the way I wanted to. Whereas with the tape, it's like I can't go back and tape this over because then I got to find something that fits. Is the you know like it's a pain. In the, it was a pain in the ass. And with a CD, forget it. Yeah. You just had to. You you would have had to just completely redo the CD. So, um, but you're you're completely right. Uh, but yeah, I, I, my thoughts on country feedback are pretty much the same. And then, and, and, and the way you stated about how this really does feel like it should be at the end is, is great. Although the end song is me and honey. You take the lead on this one. Uh, this is where I, I I said something earlier about pop sensibility, and, and REM really did know how to write a good pop song, pop rock song, um, and I think this comes through here. I never understood the lyrics to the song. Nobody does. Um, That's nobody okay. does. Yeah, Kate Pearson's back on the backing vocals, which is awesome again, and uh, it's just it's a it's a. I mean, I have nothing else to say than. Um, like I said, it belongs in the album. It's a good song. It's a fun song to listen to. Country feedback. If you, I think you're right. If you had flipped the two, it would have not felt as out of place. Because it does feel a little weird to be the last album on the song. Mm-hmm. But but it's a it's a fun song. I, I hate to say that I don't have much else to say about it beyond that but it it fits very well with shiny happy people and near wild wild heaven and and then and some of the other more more upbeat stuff on the album yeah and you know what you sort of touched on this a minute ago this isn't an album where the placement is extremely crucial of all of these songs but i will say that i kind of like the symbolism of having end game as the last song on side one Mm-hmm. Beginning side side two with shiny happy people, and then and, and of course this part didn't happen. Ending it with country feedback, and my sense of it is, this album is not as well balanced as it could have been. And you know, I mean, I guess if I'd had more time or if I'd thought about it, a, you know, ahead of time, I might have actually suggested a, a running order that would be more appropriate. 
I think that this is more an album of wanting to hit certain emotional and musical cues at certain moments, but otherwise you have room to arrange the songs however you see fit. It's only certain songs that need to go in certain places. And, you know, this is, it's not perfectly done, I'll be the first to admit, but, you know, this is one of those, song, one of those albums where the individual songs are good, you know, and actually two of them are rather overplayed in some cases, but the individual songs are actually really good. REM, at, especially at this juncture in their career, they were making, I think, bona fide albums at this point. And so to me, you know, is one song maybe as good as it could have been or is it as good as something else on the album or is it overplayed or whatever? It's OK. The only song I skip at this point is Losing My Religion. Mm-hmm. But the album is otherwise, to me, it's about listening to the whole thing. And it's the mood that the music holistically brings across, as opposed to the individual songs, which are fine. But it's only whenever you start analyzing these songs one by one by one that you realize some of these are actually kind of fucking weird. <laughs> and. You know, I mean, and, you know, Prosecution's Exhibit A is, was, and will always be radio song, mm-hmm. which is, like I say, there's a good song lurking in there somewhere. It's just the fucking hip hop intrudes. Yeah. Or maybe the counter argument is this is a good hip hop song and the fucking pop song intrudes. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I don't think schizophrenic's the right um, word for it, but. It's a little neurotic. I'll. You're neurotic, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's, but, you know, somehow you can overlook the the individual weaknesses that some of these songs have whenever you play them all together. Mm-hmm. It's harder to do on a per song basis. And to me, this is the strength of what album oriented music can be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of songs that I can pick off this album and listen to um, on their own, but you're right. When you listen to this all the way through and I think it's running time helps in that it's yes. not um, you're you're not in for a long. This isn't a double album that you you have to you know sit there. I I did a re-listen to this this morning, um, at about oh, 11 o'clock where um, and I had never really paid attention to the running time of the album. I was like making lunch or whatever, and and I'm about halfway through it. I'm like, wait, that much. Not, that, not a lot of time has gone by, and I looked at it up how long the album was. I was like, oh, wow. So I think having a 45-minute album really does lend itself well to being able to listen to the thing all the way through because there's not a lot of fat to trim either. No. And the CD era would become very, very much this um, toward the latter part of the decade where there were people putting out albums where it's like you were cramming so many songs into this album and you could have cut out a couple of these to just have a shorter album. You didn't need to put 20, 17, 18 songs on an album just because you had the space for it. Yeah, and it may have actually been better. There's something about, you know, the – they say that, you know, you're for drama, for like dramatic storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. The maximum that the human mind can really withstand is like two and a half, three hours, and that's about it. For comedy, it's a lot less. It's like 90 minutes, and that's really the sweet spot for for most for most uh, comedy and yeah, you're right. About comedy films. 90 to 100 minutes is like your average running time of a comedy. 
and when it comes to to kind of shift gears more into like a, a little bit more of a musical expression, I think the human attention span for music generally peaks at about 45, 50 minutes. And the, mm-hmm. minute, the closer you get to a full hour and then past, there are individual bands that can make that work. I speak here of uh, the one time the Smashing Pumpkins ever attempted it. I think they killed it, um, which I mean in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Beatles, Pink Floyd is fucking famous for it. And, you know, there are certain bands that that they can break that rule. But I think that 35 to anywhere between 35 and 50 minutes of music, that's really about the most that the the mind wants to be able to take in. And once you get past that, it's like it, I don't know what happens. It's like people just like switch off or something. I don't know what happens because it it works sometimes then it doesn't work. It's like the length of a song. You know, most pop songs are three minutes roughly. And granted, a lot of that, I think a lot of that has to do with just the corporatization of music and that this is what studies have shown people want to listen to on the radio. And even to the point where they will butcher certain pop songs in order to fit them on the radio, which is stupid but then again you don't want an entire album all the time full of six seven minute songs no you know especially if it's a a rock group it just becomes it it becomes overload and maybe it's just my shortened attention span over the years of the fact that i started listening to green day in the mid 90s and every song like green day at that point was like you know two and a half minutes or two and a half minutes you know and and then you know and i've listened to a lot of the ramones and stuff like that but at the same time you know, and I can do a seven-minute song. I can, but not not a full album of them. And I, I think you're right about that. Where you have, if you're going to have a double album, it has to it has to really hit. Or you do something of this, and I don't know why this popped into my head, but um, one of the last double albums I remember hearing all the way through was Speaker Box: The Love Below by Outkast, hmm. which has two distinct parts. So because it was two distinct personalities. So one one speaker box is I think that was under 3000 and then I, I don't remember who the other one is. Um, but one out one part of the album, one half of the album is all one style. The other half of the album is all another. And that's it's basically two halves put into a whole like literally two distinct halves as opposed to quadrophenia or something where it's an ongoing thing through the entire album. So, so in that case, if you're, you, you have to either make it so tight in terms of a double album that this needs to be a double album, or you end up with something like use your illusion one and use your illusion two, where you could trim, you could trim those two albums, shove them into one album and you have a good sequel to appetite for destruction, but they got so up their own ass and, and, and in their own drugs with making those two albums that it just, it was so bloated. Yeah. You know, I've thought about that a few times, you know, if you had taken the one I would insist on, okay. I mean, I would let anybody choose whatever, whatever sequence of songs, for mm-hmm. Use Your Illusion, the single album. Yeah. Choose whatever fucking songs you want. The only one I would insist upon be on there is Estranged. Mm-hmm. And I guess you kind of have to have November Rain. But, you know, otherwise, you're right. You know, you, you would have something that I think would actually rival Appetite for Destruction. And then 
I mean, the fucking B-sides that would have come out of that. I mean, yeah. they would be regarded as one of the – probably the the B-side king band of like the late 80s because – simply because of like the volume of music. I mean, like it's not – I would almost want to compare it to the Smashing Pumpkins whenever they were releasing singles for Melancholy. Mm-hmm. And there came a point when those were just not even fucking singles anymore. They were just EPs that had a hit single yeah as the lead and then mm-hmm. it was almost like it was, every single one of those singles was kind of its own sort of side journey into the melancholy universe and that's what i mean and granted we're talking about a double album there but that's what use your illusion yeah. could have been yeah and, and Res- it's a crying shame yeah and resner did that throughout the first half of the 90s where he would have remixes and other versions of the songs on the album as part of the B-sides of the singles and then with Broken and The Downward Spiral, because after The Downward Spiral I stopped listening to Nine Shells, not because of The Downward Spiral, I just, again, changing in taste. There was Fixed and there was Further Down the Spiral. Yeah. Which were both basically reworkings of a number of the pieces on that um on the album but yeah with, with use your illusion that it's just it's one of those things where like you ain't the first could have been a yellow lead better type of b-side yeah and maybe been I, the better for it you know that's yeah. how i'd be more highly regarded as a as a bona fide b-side rather than a try a non-album cut trying to pretend it's that an was, album cut that's not that, yeah that was the song we used to play either right before we went to the bar or after we got back from the bar it's a good bar yeah. song. I, I'll oh, give you that. It's a great bar song. And well, actually, they, let me rephrase that. It's a good drinking song. It's a very good drinking song, yeah. And, but then you have stuff that's really, really good on there, like, um, you know, maybe you put one of the covers on there, or you, you put the Knocking on Heaven's Door cover as a B-side and Live and Let Die. Because, don't, one of the versions of Don't Cry is a good example. Yeah. Don't Cry would be very good on the album. You choose one of the versions, the other one becomes the B-side. <laughs> you know, and you're right. And um, so, but what REM does here is they don't have. They don't no, over, it's all thriller, no filler. Yeah, exactly. There's no filler. And then they have another album that comes after this. And granted, this album is so big for them, they could have waited until 1994 to make the next album. Mm. They were that successful. And they had a huge recording contract. So it wasn't like they they weren't in the days, you know, when bands start out in those days where they're hustling and they're making albums every couple of years because they just they need to just keep getting the music out and keep getting the music out. But once they hit a certain point in their success, they'll take extra time between albums. Doesn't always work out for the best. Mm-hmm. But but automatically people was like 93, I think. And then it was 92, 93. Yeah. And then monster was 94. Right. Yes. And so those are three albums within about four or five years of one another. And that's still an output of a band that's really producing a lot. Um, and I think we're better for it because I, like I said, I think that out of time and automatic kind of go together in a sense, but there's still two separate albums. Yeah, and it's it's kind of weird. I would almost want to say it's 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 really it's rare to see something like this in, in in music. But I would go so far as to say "Automatic for the People" is kind of like a sequel to "Out of Time," mm-hmm. and you don't see sequels all that often in music. You see remakes up a yeah. fucking wazoo sometimes in in names. Sometimes like we're acknowledging that this is a cover. Sometimes, the, like you were saying before. 
a band will just kind of play the same song in with different lyrics throughout their entire yeah. career. And but like the idea of making a sequel and not in the use your illusion two kind of sense, but I mean a, like a real sequel now. Yeah, it's practically unheard of. I mean, this is one of the very few examples I can think of where you can accurate or I don't know, accurately, adequately, though, call it a sequel to Out of Time. And it's uh, it's a continuation, but it's not a retread. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's not. It, it's not out of time too, in this in the way that like Bad Out of Hell Two was a deliberate sequel, but but they they match up very very well, and it's just it's it's a it's a good portrait of a band at a time in their career, and then what I've always respected about this this band is that they've just been able to just turn around and say okay we're going to do something else now and have it, um in many cases work really really well, in some cases. Not so much depends on what at what point we are with the with the band because in their later days it was just not um, I, I couldn't get back into them. Well, one of the things that I did just kind of as a as an experiment, I mean, I've been in a serious REM mood because I've been really excited about recording the show with you. Oh, cool! And so what I did was I I played out of time probably on a loop. I I, I dare not exaggerate. I probably listened to it three times in one day at one point. Mm-hmm. And and so then that really wasn't enough. So I thought, well, technically not supposed to do this, but I'm going to go off the reservation a little bit and I'm going to spin automatic for the people. And so I was playing those mixed in. And then I said, OK, fuck it. Now I'm going on to Monster mm-hmm. and went on to New Adventures in Hi-Fi. And I'm just having the time of my life. I mean, this That's is cool. Yeah. And then I and then I thought, well, I don't really I'm not in an up kind of mood and there were like two or three records that followed up that I'm just not drawn to, I suppose. But I thought, well, you know, I never really paid all that much attention to Accelerate, their uh-huh. their next to last album, and then Collapse Into Now, which in fact was their last album. I never really paid much attention to those. I'm going to give those another look. And, you know, they sound like R.E.M., you know. And mm-hmm. what I came to realize is that, you know, it's – it's really their albums reveal and around the sun. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that I think kind of sunk the REM brand for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. If there was a way to go straight from up to accelerate, had those been the, the follow up to up. And then after that, they just split up. I think REM would actually be more highly remembered now, more yeah. well regarded. Yeah, and the, instead of like petering out over the course of a of a the better part of a decade, because I'm trying to think of what was popular when Reveal came out. It was like 2001, and, so yeah, I guess and a lot just, of Nickelback. Oh, it just it, it yeah it it would have been right for them to do something that would have been a breath of fresh air because it was, it was, it was, it was Nickelback and people who worked with Nickelback. And, um, I think maybe train was around. Um, yeah. Train, Mm -hmm. train is the rock version of herpes. (laughs) They fucking, they go dormant. And then all of a sudden, like they hit a number one and you're like, Oh my fucking God, the band train. Once again, it's just like, go away. Yeah. It's, 
every time one of their and their songs are still included sometimes in movies and shows and uh-huh. stuff. And every time it comes up, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, here we go. And it, they are the ultimate oh fuck here we go band. You know, yeah, they are herpes. They are musical herpes. But you know, like 2001 is kind of an interesting sort of moment in musical history mm-hmm. because when you think about it, it's it's like music just didn't really know where to go because you had on the one hand Coldplay of all fucking bands out there doing their thing and in a weird kind of way I always thought that like the first time I heard Yellow it sounded like it sounded kind of like Dave Matthews had joined fucking god what band was it not U2 well kind of U2 I guess but it's that because that sort of edge type of riff yeah. from you know duh, duh, and it had that kind of echoey whatever sound that the edge kind of specializes in and that's sort of what it reminded me of you know like what if dave matthews joins you too well mm-hmm. it might sound a little something like this you know and so you had that going on over and against evanescence mixed with nickelback and train what the fuck what Somebody was dropping a lot of fucking acid or something. That's the only th- yeah. that's the only way I can figure that those that specific configuration of bands yeah. can somehow be top ten at the same time with each other. How the hell else is that pot I don't know. That's just a weird time. Although under the surface there's some good stuff about that era because there's Ryan Adams starts to starts to rise at that point. Um because New York, New York's hits pretty big, um, especially post nine eleven, yeah. and 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 gold is a very very good album. Um, I think the White Stripes are kicking around at this point, or close to it, yeah, or close to it. So you're it, it it's a really good and you know it's very it not two thousand one and nineteen ninety one have those similarities in that if you look at a snapshot of the pop charts. It's much different than what a lot of people were actually listening to. And, um, you know, R.E.M. was one of the few bands that could actually break that mold. And that, like I said, at the beginning, the 91, it was Mariah and Whitney and Wilson Phillips and CNC Music Factory and a lot of a lot of way overproduced pop. Madonna was still in there with some stuff here and there. She was Madonna was about to enter was was right in the middle of getting into the sex book erotica phase because justify my love was 1990 so this was this was the blonde ambition tour truth or dare um i don't remember if truth or dare had just come out or if it was out around that time but it was that era of madonna where she was starting to head down the um down the road toward you know Becoming uh, a kind of a pervert, yeah. Yeah, just the, that that sort of, which is, um, the music isn't particularly great, although there is some really good stuff in there. Um, but you have a lot of squeaky clean pop as well. And and then you have the last death throes of hair metal. Yeah. You have Guns N' Roses, you have the U2 and, and, and R.E.M. And R- it, it becomes this weird, before before this, before grunge is, is, commercialized mm-hmm. in a sense before it is repackaged as grunge you have a lot of music that is coming out that is really really good because there's because there's such a wasteland that people are willing to f- pick something up throw it against the wall see if it sticks and 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 that that's what makes for some great errors in in music so 
Agreed. No, I'm really I'm really glad we 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 did this album and I'm glad that we started really, really fun. with this yes. album. Yeah, I'm glad we started with this album. Because like the for those listening, I'm just gonna peel back the curtain. And after this, I mean I think I'm running up against the clock. We're way over yeah, what I what, what I told Tom we were gonna do. But the original okay. plan that uh, Tom and I had was that we were gonna start off with green. And mm-hmm. whenever he and I kind of put our heads together, what we realized is I was gonna talk about green because I figured Tom wanted to talk about green and he was going to talk about green because he figured I wanted to, but yeah. neither of us really wanted to. Yeah. Well, green isn't a bad album by any means. It was just, there's green is an album where I can pick two three, four songs off of it. And I'm like, all right, I'm fine. You know, and this is an album and automatic for the people is also an album that I can listen to all the way through. Yes. Without really skipping anything. And monster which we will eventually get to is an album that to me is really conflicted because there's parts of it. I really like, and there are parts of it where I can totally tell where yeah, it's just, I know that it's going to be a good conversation. And I um, think that that almost has a lot of baggage to it for the yeah. band. And I honestly, and I think that's I, what makes the conversation really good. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. And, uh, but that's, I don't know. I, all around, I'm glad that we're going to be doing this. And just to kind yes. of lay down a little yes. bit of a blueprint, at least for this phase of This Is Music, what Tom and I are going to do is we're sticking with R.E.M. for the time being. The next thing we're going to talk about, we're just, you know, no need to reinvent the wheel. We're just going to go chronologically. It's going to be automatic for the people. And then, you know, you just said it, followed by Monster. But I just want to thank you for taking what's closing in on three hours of your time uh-huh. here. Because uh, no I originally said, you know, 60, you know, for like 45, 60 minutes at, at the most. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're home. Well, here we are. Hey, why not? But uh, before you go, um, why don't you tell everybody where it is that they can find you? Okay. Um, you can find me at two places at the, at the moment, um, both over at Two True Freaks. Uh, I have a show called In Country where I'm taking a issue-by-issue look at the Marvel Comics war series The Nom. Uh, that is going to, as of as of recording this, I'm about 72 episodes, 67 released, 72 recorded. Oh boy! And so it's going to be a hundred episode run. So maybe by the time this come this this hits, I might be closer to the end of that run. But the the other the, my main podcast and the one that that I that I uh, and I enjoy doing them both, but the one I obviously put a lot of more time into is Pop Culture Affidavit, which is a Thanks. It's a blog and, and podcast. Uh, the podcast comes out oh every few weeks to a month. Um, it is literally everything random. It it will be movies one day, music, comics, TV, or, or whatever the next. Um, and then the blog, which is over at popcultureaffidavit.com, is um, I try to update it on a weekly basis with uh, stuff that just doesn't make into doesn't make it up for a podcast episode. So I will just do essays and on random random topics and i have truly gone random i have covered everything (laughs) from from really important comic book stuff to like insanely obscure commercials and and stuff i I have a lot of fun doing it because it's just it's whatever the hell am i feeling right now and i I just pick something off this list and i'm like go so you can find uh so that's a pop culture affidavit.com and the feeds for all of the podcasts you can find over at two truefreaks.com all right. And just one other thing. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot and say that, you know, the sooner you have Amanda on the show again, you know, to do more episodes, the better. Because, you know, man, she 
you know, your solo shows are fine. I'm not taking anything away from that, but she really, I, I just, I, I, I like the, uh, the uh, shows where she, where, where she participates. Thanks. So hopefully there's going to be some of that. We, we, we've got something, um, we, we were talking about doing something, uh, um, we just have to make sure that we're, uh, we'll have the energy after a day of working parenting to and, and figure out what we <laughs> want to do it. So, but we'll definitely probably sometime over the summer, we'll record something for later release in the year. But yeah, we, we've definitely talked about doing something. So, and sometimes with me and her, we're like, we come up with ideas. It's like when, whenever any of us come up with an idea for a podcast, like, Oh, we should do that. And like six months go by and we're like, Hey, remember when we said we would do this? Yeah, that's, this that's is basically how we're supposed to do Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, tons of fun. Thank you for coming. And uh, I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Introducing the all-new Demonzocom iMagnus, the smartphone that does it all. The tech sensation that's sweeping the nation, the all-new, all-amazing, all-around awesome Demonzocom iMagnus is the last word in smartphones. Easily storable in the bed of your pickup truck or the cargo trailer of your 18-wheeler, the iMagnus smartphone already has all the apps you'll ever need pre-installed for your convenience. Our customized, award-winning apps are perfect for every user. The iMagnus Dating Tips app is perfect for lonely souls. Created in consultation with international heartthrob Bill Cosby, the Dating Tips app ensures you'll never spend another Saturday night alone ever again. Currently available only in Punjabi. Is your furry little friend stressed out? Does your dog desperately need some relaxation? Well, the iMagnus Doggy Brothel Locator will find the nearest Magnus Doggy Brothel in your area for your convenience. It also includes coupons, which lifetime members can use to obtain such nifty bargains as two bitches at the same time, discounted pricing, and other hot furry deals. But that's not all. The Demonzocom iMagnus even includes a working bullshit detector app already installed for your convenience. Ever wondered if somebody's giving you a line of absolute horseshit? Well, the mighty iMagnus is just for you. The bullshit detector app poops every time a fib is spoken in your presence. Perfect for job interviews, prom dates, and even presidential campaigns. The Demonzocom iMagnus, the smartphone that does it all. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed while many did not come back at all. 
This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am. Or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. 
If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental, and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>